VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, June the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get off to a flying start in the week. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26, well, the weather's still holding awful here in this neck of the woods. Apparently, it's going to be pretty nice on the west coast and on the south coast. There's actually a frost warning in different parts of the province for tonight. But here we go. And for that, I'm looking out the window, and for the first time maybe ever, wishing I could get out there and mow my lawn. Haven't been able to get out because it's sopping wet, but it's getting a bit out of control. It's out of control to the point where if my neighbor's lawn looked like that, I'd be quite cross with them. And now I'm that person, so hopefully it dries up a little bit. And speaking of, uh, I'm a fair-weather golfer as well. What a weekend in sports, in particular yesterday. So, I don't know how many of you were following the RBC Canadian Open, but of course, as we primed the pump last week regarding the tournament, it had been since 1954 since the Canadian won. That was Pat Fletcher. And prior to that, it was 1914 since the Canadian won. And this tournament has been played since 1904. And then finally, yesterday, Canadian Nick Taylor brings it home. Amazing stuff. After shooting a course record 63 on Saturday, comes into the play yesterday a few shots back. Birdie 17 and 18 to get himself into a playoff with uh, Englishman Tommy Fleetwood. And the fourth playoff hole sinks a 72-foot putt for Eagle to win. Really, truly amazing stuff. Now, of course, commentators get carried away with the emotion of the win, right? So they're comparing it to the greatest all-time uh, Canadian sports moments. Sidney Crosby's golden goal in the Olympics in Vancouver or Joe Carter's wor- World Series uh, winning home run. I don't know where it is, but certainly in the Canadian golf world, it's massive. It really is. We've got a lot of good Canadian players out there. Four Canadians have actually won on the PGA Tour this year. And now Taylor, that's his third win. The most wins by Canadian male is Mike Weir, who was in the tennis. Of course, the 2003 Masters champion. He has eight, tied with George Knudsen. So we've got a lot of good Canadian players out there. Of course, on the women's side, Brooke Henderson with her two majors in hand. But anyway, it was pretty great stuff. I certainly enjoyed it myself. And the Newfoundland Rogues, well, actually, you can get a bit of tennis. So at the French Open. We got a chance to see the king of tennis being crowned yesterday as Novak Djokovic, the Serbian superstar, wins his 23rd Grand Slam. Most ever. Breaking the tie with Spaniard Rafael Nadal. And, of course, Roger Federer has 20. So that's a third French for Djokovic at the age of 36. He looks like there's no end in sight to his winning. So brilliant. So it was his 94th title as a pro as well. Anyway, the Newfoundland Rogues are in Albany to play the Patroons tonight. Game two of the conference final after dropping the series opener, 134 to 108. And speaking of basketball, I heard a great story this morning about the first ever basketball team in Sheshiji. So the Sheshiji Eagles are now on the floor, getting coached up, going to play in their very first real games in a regional tournament that's on the way. So it's not just the physical activity, of course, but the story was really terrific in this, uh, in this light. The positive impact it's had on the players' mental health. The positive impact it's had on them being attending school. So... In the past, maybe just choosing to skip school altogether and then just maybe slinking in for the afternoon after missing the morning so they can practice with their teammates after school. That's gone away. you got to go to school to be able to be part of the team. So it's had a really nice impact across 
the entire landscape. So good luck to the G Eagles. First ever basketball team. Remarkable stuff. All right, of course, there's about a week and a half left in the K-12 school system. Lots of bizarre conversations uh, regarding what's happening or not happening in the province of schools. But whatever angle you'd like to take it on, we're happy to do it. Education, as I long say, you know, when we're asked about what's important to us, generally political polling leading up to elections, and education is always way down the list when, in fact, if it was at the top of the list, the issues that you're concerned with, the economy and taxes and jobs and health care and the environment and ju the justice system, we'd probably be able to tackle those a little bit more effectively if we'd... Uh, talk more about the importance of education, but of course, you know, the stories that have been dominating the headlines regarding school and what is or likely not happening in the province of schools. We're not afraid of it. You want to take it on? Let's do it. All right. I also saw this story. You talk about let the kids be kids, right? Now I've read a story and I'm really not sure what to make of it. On one hand, it's super impressive. On the other, talk about being a fish out of water. So the youngest Canadian uh, university graduate is about to cross the stage to convoke with a bachelor's degree in biomedical science. Anith uh, Anthea Grace Patricia Dennis is 12 years old. She enrolled at the University of Ottawa when she was nine. Right? So obviously a child prodigy and unbelievable to be able to complete a bachelor's degree in anything but biomedical science at the age of 12, truly remarkable stuff. So her mother's a law professor and of course probably pushed her pretty hard at home. Nothing wrong with pushing her kid down a proactive path like being well educated. So here's one thing that she completed while she was doing this degree. A 40-page thesis on the relationship between handedness and the functional activity in the cerebellum. That's the part of the brain responsible for coordinating your balance and your movement. She presented it in front of the uh, Ottawa Carleton Institute of Biology Symposium. She's going to move off, of course, to do some postgraduate work. The three candidates for the school she will attend, McGill, University of Toronto, the Illinois Institute of Technology, focusing on functional activity in the cerebellum. 12. I'm not really sure what to make of that. You know, of course, on one hand, as I said, super impressive, but on the other, boy, you wonder what that path has looked like for a nine-year-old walking into a university, but anyway, well stuff. Uh, let's talk about some food. So there's collaboration between Food First NL and the Newfoundland Labrador Human Rights Commission, talking about the fundamental right to food. Again, you know, when there are crises, governments will step up and do the right thing by the people impacted, you know, whether it be with natural disasters or otherwise. But food and food insecurity is a crisis in the country. Now, it's fine to say that internationally, food is considered human right, but nobody does anything to actually enforce it. So between Food First and Ellen and Human Rights Commission, trying to come up with a campaign to put it on the front burner where it absolutely belongs, poor choice of uh, phrase there, but right there on the front burner. So we need to have protection for access to food, places to file a complaint about the lack of access to food, and, you know, whether it be the municipalities or the provincial government or, yes, the federal government in the right, the role they play so that millions of Canadians who are now fully reliant on the food bank have access to healthy options. And I don't know how about we control any costs because that opens up Pandora's box of government gets in the business of decreasing prices in the grocery store, even though that conversation has been ongoing. Totally get it. And they play the winners and losers on one side, you know, a.k.a. the sugar tax, for instance, but good on the folks at Food First NL and the Human Rights Commission to try to see what that campaign of awareness and paint very clear lines between food insecurity and other social ills. So then they also talk about the rules that impact traditional ways to find food. 
whether it be foraging, hunting, fishing. So actually, we've got a call in the queue already to talk about something inside the fishery, but good for the folks there. But right under that news story was something that is near and dear to my heart when we talk about food insecurity and proximity to options to buy healthy options for food. So there's a new greenhouse in Cornerbrook. Hopefully this will be the impetus to see more of these greenhouses built in municipalities dotted right across the province. It just seems to me as to be one surefire way to complement the homesteader, to complement the backyard farming, to complement the programs like Food First NL and others have uh, put in place. So this greenhouse costs about $150,000. It was put there by the Western Environment Center for all to see. So you can't help but drive in and out of Cornerbrook and see this greenhouse. It's a dome. Looks pretty impressive. Takes about 10 days to erect the, uh, the exterior walls. But they're going to have the opportunity to take advantage of technology which is absolutely out there yes it comes with an upfront cost but if we talk about upfront costs and cost recovery models and what it actually means to people living close by a community garden or a greenhouse this has got to be part of the solution just think about it it's easy enough for me living in the east end of town i've got options very close by where i live and I can indeed take advantage of the flyers because it's not a big load of gas consumption for me to go to Colmans, to Dominion, to the Sobeys. They're right there, very closely connected. It is a bit of a trek, but sometimes worth it to go to places like the Walmarts and or Costco's. But if you're living in a rural, remote part of the province, proximity is a big, complicating part of the problem. So anyway, good on the folks at Western Environment Center to put that greenhouse there. And maybe other municipalities and other groups will follow suit. All right. Uh, hate to be talking about it, but we got to hope we can protect folks from falling prey to the relentless scammers. We know the pressure is on finding affordable housing, whether a home to buy or an apartment to rent. The costs on both fronts are completely out of whack. So what's going on now is that folks are stealing images or pictures from a real estate listing or from a property management company. They're putting it out there on their own platform. And there's a lot of red flags that you have to be, be made aware of. So for starters, there's going to be some potential grammatical errors, which always jumps off one of these scams. But then it, when people are feeling the pressure to put a roof over their head and desperate to do so, they may indeed just lose sight of the possibility they're being scammed. So the one big thing you need to watch out for is when there's a lot of pressure for you to make a deposit whether it be first month's rent or a security deposit or what have you. There's one story, and one lady in the news, who I actually know, Mickey Blackwood. She said it used to happen infrequently where someone would knock on the door and say, I'd like to see your apartment that you have for rent. And she says, I don't have an apartment for rent. And now it's happening a lot. And consequently, recently, this one young fellow came to the door asking to see the apartment. She said she didn't have one and asked whether or not you had made a deposit. And this young fellow says, unfortunately, yes. Brought him to tears. So so you know lots of times people will not report the scam because they're embarrassed but just be aware you know one of the key things you can do is to ask the person who's got an, uh, an apartment for rent on whatever platform online is to ask for a reference for a past tenant for instance so they can talk about the relationship between the tenant and the landlord and maybe what the apartment is like so unfortunately we have to keep bringing these scam things up because they're happening absolutely endlessly and as with horror i watched the story unfold regarding the amber alert that we all received in our devices last week and now three people have been charged three people in their 60s and 70s charged with child abduction and conspiracy to commit an abduction 
they're set to face the judge for a bail hearing today, and we can talk about whether or not they belong out. But if these charges are proven to be true in court, this is the type of evil that lurks around every corner. So apparently one of the men used to live with this family in New Brunswick. That family moved to St. John's. He came to the province looking to set up a child-luring sting to kidnap her. And you can only imagine what the kidnapping was for. You know, the mind goes down some very dark roads, but it's not hard to believe that. If this is all true, then they were intending on using a teenage girl in the world of human trafficking, sex and sextortion that we see happening all the time. So, you know, while people focus on some pretty strange things in this world, and yes, we want our children to feel like they're independent and we trust them, but there's no harm, and not trying to scare, their, scare them to their, out of their wits, but to just talk about what's actually happening here. You know, just like you, we want to protect our kids. But we also have to make them aware of what's actually happening and what the realities are in the world. And hopefully we can do that in an honest fashion, as opposed to the exaggeration that drives clicks and for your endorphins to be set alive on Facebook or what have you. But that child abduction case is really something else. How are we doing on the telephone there this morning, Dave? All right, a couple of quick ones before we get to your calls. So maybe we'll make some time, or hopefully Darren King at Trades and Elks can make some time for us, because we do find ourselves in a pretty curious spot, and an interesting, but maybe a good spot to be in. We know sometime the next couple of weeks or three weeks, we're going to hear more from the government about which of the 24 wind to hydrogen ammonia projects will proceed. But if everything happens at a similar time frame, we're going to be in a spot where we don't even know if we have the tradespeople to take on these projects. We're talking about thousands of jobs if these projects get off the ground. So maybe Mr. King, if he's listening this morning, would like to come on and talk about it. And on the federal front, it was inevitable. Prime Minister Trudeau's selection of David Johnson to be the special rapporteur to look into foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 elections has stepped down. The political environment has absolutely made it impossible for him to complete his role. So he will submit another report by the end of the month, but he's going away. He's, you know, and I don't think there was any option there. Then we hear from Minister Dominic LeBlanc, the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, pretty much saying that a public inquiry may indeed be back on the table. Now, that requires the opposition parties to be part of the process for terms of reference and the selection of whatever judge may indeed head up this inquiry, which I think is required, albeit very unlikely we get a whole lot more information and detailed information about what went on because it's going to be a lot of classified information that we're never going to get to see. So will there be a way for opposition parties to shelve some of the rhetoric and just get to the brass tacks here? And yes, it's important to know who knew what when and what was done about it. There's been some advancement in protections, but this is a trust issue, and it's incumbent on the government to deal with this in as transparent a way as is humanly possible inside the protections of the intelligence community. So I think we're probably going to see that come to pass. And as I mentioned at 820 with uh, Jerry Lynn Mackey, about uh, about some of the issues that are coming to impact your pocketbook. On the 1st of July, the new clean fuel regulations are going to take place or be implemented. Now, the current rules are a little bit different than what's coming. So right now, we have the carbon tax, of course, and so the Canadian Taxpayer Federation is calling these new regulations and the associated costs as carbon tax 2.0. But anyway, the new rules are going to cover everything from... Uh, 
the creation of the fuel, transportation, and the end consumer and the emissions associated with it. So the target here is to reduce the carbon intensity of the fuels, right? So by 2030, the rules will require a 15% cut in emissions intensity compared to 2016 levels. But inside the refinery business, between 2019 and 2022, their margins increased dramatically, from just over 10 cents per liter to almost 50 cents per liter. So they should indeed be absorbing some of this cost. And then there's the ability for some of the producers to actually see money come into their pockets. So if they reduce their carbon emissions, whether it be by carbon capture and storage, or including more uh, ethanol in their fuels, using biodiesel, or other innovative ways to reduce emissions, they can sell those as an inform of a carbon credit, make some money. And they should not be putting this all on us. And then you know there's the contrast between Environment and Climate Change Canada, and this is incremental increase. We're not gonna see 17 cents bang down to the liter of fuel immediately on the 1st of July. It's gonna be incremental up to 2030. But Environment and Climate Change Canada says it's gonna see a minimal impact over the few years. Okay, if you listen to the Parliamentary Budget Office, they say a 17 cent uh, increase in the price per liter. And that includes here in this province, of course. That's on top of what would be 37 cents in carbon tax added to a liter of gasoline by 2030. So they also talk about what the impact will be specifically on GDP. Here in this province, without the regulations, or pardon me, with these regulations, we'll see a decrease of 1% in provincial GDP because of it. So this is a big one, and it comes with an impact on your household bill. And we know the Atlantic premiers have already said that they're asking the federal government to delay the implementation of these clean fuel regulations for the obvious reasons. And Atlantic Canada is a little bit more unique than the rest of the country with only one refinery. And of course, that story with the Irving's vague news release about restructuring or selling in part or in full their operations, which includes the largest refinery in the country. So anyway, a lot to that. Right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. But my favorite is when you join us live on the air like Mario, who wants to talk about fish merchants who are not buying crab. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Mario. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Paddy. Welcome to the show. Yes, boy. I'm calling you, Paddy, about uh, due to the fish merchant for having the problems not letting the inch you off lead go fishing. Where are you? Uh, I'm calling from Redhead Cove. I'm fishing at the Baby Bird. Okay. We're selling the quill number. I was saying, uh, right now, I have not one, one pound of crab sold on my, uh, on my license. And the government give them a license to buy, uh, well, seafood, you say. And D cannot refuse not to buy for many fish hours that are selling to them. We all know that. Yeah, now there's where the gray area becomes a problem for the harvester, is that they can't refuse to buy, but they get the entire season to satisfy that requirement, which is no good to you because you want to get yours landed before you run out of time, and you want to be able to land your entire individual quota before the season's over. So I understand your concern. So this is all a trip limit issue, is it? Yeah, right now it's on the trip limit, yeah, but... Uh, Right now, me and my brother, we got three licenses on the one vessel, and we're allowed seven thousand pound a trip. But if you was allowed seventy thousand, it's still no good if you guys if you're not allowed to buy boat. And there it is, the company boats, a lot of quillins, they are they are going back and forth all the time. And a few independent fellas, the big fellas that that they sold to them like all, like all the time, but they do, that they don't own, they are going back and forth all the time. But you take like Paddy, like one fella. Like, with one license, fish that a baby bird, he's allowed £3,000, and there he is, he's not allowed to go fishing. And the first thing, you might look up in your face and tell you, boy, if we let you go fishing, you might block the plants. 
That's what they might come out and tell you. So the day, I want to get on this morning early because I'm going to have a busy, busy day today. So right now here in the province, we got no government going to listen. we got no fisheries minister going to listen. The union won't listen. And DFO won't listen. So today, I'm taking my concerns at a province. I got a list of names. I started said yet this. Said enough emails, and I was at it yesterday. I got a list of people today to contact, and someone today got to got to got to, got to smarten up and try to listen to what's going on, to what the boys are doing to the enjoy fishery over in the province. So just, just for clarification, you're saying that the Quinlan brothers actually have their own vessels out <laughs> fishing crab? Yes. Tell you, that's no secret. Everyone knows that. All the companies got vessels. Most of them, anyhow, they got vessels. We all know that's going on. That's no lie. They got it from the inshore fleet well up to the 65-footer. I didn't say anything was a lie. I just asked <laughs> if I heard what you said correctly. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's the way it is. And where I have sat down, not allowed to go fishing. Have they given you a date? Like, I remember when it was uh, Quincy Royal Greenland weren't buying from the under-40 fleet, but they said there was a date coming where they would start buying, and I think it was about a week after the lady called and talked about it on this program. Has has the Quinlan Brothers operation given you a date? Well, the last time I was talking to one of the persons like the Quinlans, uh, the information I got, he told me that you might be, this was last week, he said you might be able to go fishing this week coming, and then it looks like you're going to get a trip every two weeks. So, if that's the case, right now, me and my brother, we got a license and a half on the vessel each. So, if we was to go fishing, say, this week, like, say, like, Wednesday coming, I think it's going to be a good day. Because the day is a gale of wind, tomorrow's going to be a gale of wind. So, just say Wednesday, if we went fishing. Then, and so my name, then we can't go fishing no more until up to the 28, or if that's two weeks, if that's what they're going to do. So the next time I make another sale on my license, it'll be up to up to the, up to about the middle of July. So right now, if that's what they're going to do, I'm going to get two trips on my licenses, and my brother is going to get three more, and we're done for the year. And everyone knows it's 100% wrong what they're doing. So Mar- the staff is right, that's what they're at. So Mario, what you just described with two trips and three for your brother, does that mean you'll be able to get the entirety of your quota? No, you won't. We got thirty thousand pound of crab left on the bottom. That's what we got. We got one trip. We made one trip on the second of June, and we saw I sold that my brother's name. And right now today we got a little over thirty thousand left on the bottom. And and there it is. We're not allowed to go fishing to, to get out to uh, to try to get it. So like I said, Paddy, today I'm taking my concerns out of province today. There's nothing else left to do. There's no one in this province to contact. If you do contact them, they haven't got the guts enough to call you back on no issue. So someone got smartened up today and tried to listen and try to get something straightened out with this. So, it's gone overboard now, this is. So one, once again, Mario, so you're taking it out of province to who, for, for what purpose? Like, what do you think you're going to achieve here, and who are you going to take the, your concerns to? I'm going to take my concerns to someone who's going to listen. Who might that be? I'm, ju- I'm just curious what your well, uh, process I'll is. You, I'll tell you, first, I'll be listening to going to be the Fisheries and Oceans in uh, Ottawa. Okay, so Minister Murray's office, yeah. Yep, that's the first crowd. And I got people here I'm going to call today. I'm not going to let the car the bag yet. But if I get the hold to them and they're willing to help, yeah, then I'll let the car the bag. Who he is? I sent out a few emails yesterday for people to get a hold to me today. And anyone, I don't care where you're from in the world, if you want to contact me, I'll do an interview with anyone. 
And my phone number is 709-587-3909. And I will do an interview with anyone. I don't care who he is. Yeah, well, we've got your number here. If anybody wants to get in touch with us, uh, we're happy to share your number if you want. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, good luck, Mary. Keep us, in, uh, keep us in the loop. I will, Barry. Okay, man. I'll okay. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go line three. Steve, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay. How about you? We're doing all right. Okay. Um, where to begin? Um, I just wanted to talk about the flu this year and the previous years versus uh, and the vaccines for the flu. Um, it's weird to me because uh, if you look into this at all, and I, I did pre- present this at the NCI in Truro, and it got quite a raucous laughter amongst the people there because it's shocking. But in the CDC reported in the states in 2020. 2019-2020 flu season, they had 36 million cases of the flu. And then 2020-2021, if you look at the CDC website, it says, um, I got it right here, uh, different, there was no actual flu reported. There was too little to report. But one quote, if you, they highlight that uh, those years, if you click on that and follow that link, it takes you to a page about that flu season, and they reported 2,265 confirmed cases of the flu. It's a 99.99% reduction in the flu in the United States in one year with a vaccine that's only 40% effective in preventing infections, not hospitalizations and deaths. They have different criteria, of course, for that uh, that particular vaccine. So uh, the same thing happened in Canada. We went from 55,379 flu cases in 2019-2020 flu season to 69 the following year. Again, 99.99% reduction in flu cases. What I'm trying to figure out is why why isn't this being rammed down our throats that we should all get the flu vaccine? Because obviously it's amazingly effective, even though no one claims that. I don't understand how well, we can <clears throat> we can basically take one in ten thousand is what the, the ratio works out to. We got rid of nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine cases out of ten thousand in a year. It's worldwide too. If you look at the CDC uh, uh, report on the entire world uh, from the World Health Organization, their own graph shows 2020-21 has. No, no cases in the world. Okay, just make sure that I'm on the right track here. So you're saying why isn't there and aren't there campaigns to have everyone get a flu vaccine? But of course, in this province, there has been a campaign every single season of flu season well, what, about getting a vaccine. The, uh, the huge reductions. Why is no one talking about that? Like, obviously, I mean, obviously, some of this got called COVID to inspire fear in us all or else. I mean, the PCR tests, when you run them at 45 cycle thresholds, they can't tell between cancer and and a, and a flu or covid right i mean well, okay. uh, that's, uh, ask for an inch you take a mile if you take an inch and run it through 45 cycle thresholds you get 550 million miles you can go to the sun and back three times that's uh, that that's what our government ran pcr tests at i mean it, it's uh, okay before we go down the pcr test row which I, i'm not to, to be honest i'm not really sure how that works hold on a second Steve. The, the flu vaccine has been notoriously ineffective season after season what basically happens is we see what the predominant flu strain is in the uh, west pardon me the southern hemisphere we try to create a vaccine to deal with it and then of course we've had seasons where the effectiveness has been somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 40 percent so this has been a long-running concern about just how effective a flu vaccine can be because we're trying to get it right in a predicted fashion which we don't know what strains will make it to this part of the world that may one one strain in australia doesn't mean it's going to be the same strain in st john's by the time flu season comes around here so i think that's been widely understood and widely yeah. documented so what so how do we get a 100 percent reduction one year i don't know i don't have an answer to that steve do you think are you are you suggesting because i i, I don't want to read between the lines here I, 
rather you just say it out loud. Do you think that all the flu cases that were actually seasonal influenza were, were reported as COVID? Yes. Okay. Almost. I mean, how else could it be, honestly? So anyway, um, yeah, that, that's obviously something happened there. There's just no way that the flu went away and it's back now. It's worse now in 2023 than it's been for years. Um, from all the preliminary reports of cases, it's, uh, the spike is higher than any other year, and we're only in, what, June? So that, that's kind of shocking to me that uh, after almost eradicating it completely worldwide, apparently, um, it's back with a vengeance as the COVID numbers go down. Yeah. So it kind of seems like a, a renaming of something. But I want to move on to... Uh, but just, you know, I, I don't want to move on quite yet. Do you think any right. public health protections had an impact on whether it be any virus out there, whether it be COVID or seasonal influenza? No, not much. I mean, I'm a doctor. I know very well. As a dentist, I have open mouths in front of me every day, all day, for 23 years. And for me, the mask is there to prevent splatter and aerosolized uh, saliva and blood. And you got a, you got a air turbine rotor rot- going at 500,000 RPMs. Things get in the air, and you can breathe them in. So for me, that's what the mask was for. And to think that it would prevent 100% of anything. I mean, if the masks actually worked as people believe they do, we're getting cloth masks as a joke, but imagine an N95. If they prevented COVID or the flu, the people making those masks would have that right on the box, but they actually specifically state they do not prevent respiratory viruses. Right, but of course, you went down the, uh, the road of masks. I asked about public health measures because they were varied, right? There was, well, you know, whether it be... Wear a mask. You have to wear a mask. <laughs> All right. Right. Only when you're sitting, though, if you stood up, or sorry, when you stood up, if you sat down, the masks, you don't need them then, right? I mean, you, we talk about following the science. There's no science in any of that. It's well, that was ridiculous. sitting down to We're eat. Still wearing masks today, right? I see people every day wearing cloth masks. My understanding is that we, we wear clothing, because that's what they're made out of, to breathe, not to suffocate. So if you think a cloth mask is doing you any good, I mean, that's brainwashing. That's, that's ridiculous. Do you think in the world of public health measures, whether it be with physical distancing, washing your hands, covering your coughs and sneezes, wearing a mask, in conjunction, they were helpful in protecting people? I don't know how they wouldn't well, have been. I don't think, well, how did it work so well for the flu and not at all for COVID? COVID numbers went up. So, I mean, that's, uh, that just doesn't make sense. No, I don't think so. I mean, he, Fauci said, when they asked him about it, he said, well, you can't stop respiratory virus with masking and things. And then four days later, he said, we have to wear masks, right? So it's absolutely, um, it's political science, not not actual genuine science, right? So I focus on uh, Tony Fauci. Because uh, he was the one that, in the States, we all followed him, right? Everybody did. So he was the one that said, originally, in an email, masks don't work. Then four days later, it was mandated that people had to wear, we have to start masking kids in schools, we have to wear masks indoors, highly recommended and uh, then enforced basically so I, I reference him because he was the one that our people followed but of course in the united states this was all very much uh, state decision making yeah I'm people not people like to hang it on tony fauci because it's i don't know uh, i'm not even really sure why because i've even seen protest signs here in the city of st john's talking about tony fauci of all things when there's lots to be discussed here and i think as i've mentioned before if we had to listen listen more to the social scientists beyond the uh, healthcare professionals then we probably would have made some better decisions about how to proceed with whatever was present in the community from seasonal influenza to covid to any other uh, uh potential respiratory illness or virus so anyway did you want to say anything yeah. else steve before we move on 
before we move on, just with about Tony Fauci, the only reason I bring him up is that he was the one that said, look, if you get your vaccine, you won't get infected. A blatant lie. They knew it because they didn't even test it. And Pfizer did test it, of course, but they tried to hide their data for 75 years. Uh, I, I lose trust when I hear that from a pharmaceutical company or anyone. They well, say, well, I, we did the data. We're not going to report it. Uh, we want to hide it. In fact. Well, I think blind faith in pharmaceutical companies is... <sighs> fool's errand or a flight of fancy anyway i mean they have a track record that is dubious to say the very least i don't imagine anybody out there uh well let me start that again people absolutely realize now that the advertised effectiveness of the vaccine was nowhere near what it turned out to be that's that's well, absolutely true right zero side effects. i heard haggy saying that there's no side effects just take your shot just get it which sounds like bullying to me anyway i want to talk about some uh, couple access to information quickly before i have to go to the break but go ahead where do you want yeah, to start I want to point out that the government whoever they hired to do their math just simply can't do math so the person that sent me an atip response and i was asking about the deaths of the different vaccine statuses over the course of the whole pandemic and she came back and said because i i requested it in 2023 that all the deaths had to be recategorized as up to date or not which was very very uh, curious to me anyway the data i got was that in the 50 to 59 age group 42.9% of the 14 deaths were up to date, which is six people. But then in the 60 to 69 age group, there were 35 deaths, and I was told 41.2% of those were up to date. Now, the problem is that 41.2% of 35 is 14.42. If it was 14, it would have been 40%. If it was 15, it would have been 42.9 again. Three sevenths, right? Versus two fifths. Anyway, so- uh, the same thing for the next data set for the 70 plus. It was 133.468 people died. They're, they're just making up the numbers, right? There's no... Uh, but what, what are we talking about here, Steve? Deaths associated with what? The COVID-related COVID deaths, as they were reported? Reported by the NL. Yeah, and so I've got screenshots of all the, all the, uh, uh, the pie charts that they put out, too. And it's curious that uh, um, in those, like, we've only had two people die under the age of 40 the entire, t- entire pandemic. And they were both fully vaccinated. So no one under the age of 40 has died who is unvaccinated. And yet we're getting six-month-olds vaccinated. Absolutely unbelievable. Well, th- those no. people made a choice right. there. There was no one under the age of 18 was compelled to get the vaccine. So inside the pandemic, and given the age of the population... Uh, just hold on, Steve. Given the age of the population here, the issue regarding the comorbidities and who will be more vulnerable to serious illness regarding COVID, with the vaccination status and those two aforementioned issues, I think the total number of COVID-related deaths in the province, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably have the numbers in front of you, I think somewhere like 384. Doesn't that kind of say out loud that we had a very vulnerable population? So with public health measures and whatever effectiveness of vaccines, whether it be for older people who got vaccinated more than younger people, took repeated boosters versus many younger folks. Doesn't that kind of say that, in large part, it was a very effective strategy? Now, there's all sorts of complications that come with lockdowns and mandates. Look, I understand all that. But with that death count... Sorry, but these are the people that were supposed to be protected. You're saying it's, it's counterintuitive to say these are the most susceptible people. They're the ones who were supposed to be protected by it. But they weren't. They died. Do you know what? There have been this other ATIP was 202 people that have died in Newfoundland as of April 5th. So there's been 50 deaths since then. So I was at 339 at that point in time. 202 had had at least three shots. Under 65 were unvaccinated. So three times more people have died in our province, triple jab or more, than unvaccinated through the entire pandemic. So that's 16 months of people being triple jabbed versus three years of people being unvaccinated. That math just doesn't add up. Yeah, you can't tell me that's that's helping people. That's ridiculous. 
And they say, oh, it would have been worse. No, it would have been better. You can't tell me I'm wrong either because they didn't do the, the research. How can but I now, so, but you're you're just guessing, though, right? You're saying it would have so been we, better had there no been no vaccine. I mean, how can that stand any sort of well, common sense uh, smell test? Well, I'll tell you what. You tell me what how a biological spike, sixty trillion of them in your system, is helpful. That leads to clotting, it leads to blood issues, all sorts of things. The, the lipid nanoparticles were designed to be distributed throughout the entire body. They were designed to deliver chemotherapeutic agents to people with brain cancer. So it crosses the blood-brain barrier, therefore it crosses the placental barrier, therefore it causes all sorts of neural issues with people with getting blindness and all sorts of different things. And the fact they said it was completely safe. And you talked about transparency from the, but the just opposition. Hold on a second. There, I mean, the list of side effects and potential risks associated, I mean, when there's this so-called data dump of the however many pages of uh, Pfizer documents that talked about side effects, that's what could happen, not what will happen. Well, what did happen? Or necessarily will happen. 23 deaths, Patty. Page 7 of the report, 5.3.6, the uh, post-marketing experience, they re- Pfizer themselves, out of 43,579 people, they had, out of those people, 1,223 died. That's why they tried to hide it. I mean, that's their own data. That's why they tried to hide it for 75 years. The 43,000 people had 160,000 side effects. They had four on average each. No wonder they tried to hide it, and they unblinded their placebo group. I mean, trusting Pfizer is the worst thing anyone could ever do. They're the most litigated. They've paid the most fines of any company in the history of the earth. And yet we said, well, no, no... uh, you can be immune from liability. That's the problem with the vaccine conversation is quite clear. Is that just recently this morning, read a news story that a news story that former Italian Prime Minister Berlusconi had died. The very first response to that on the social media was, "Did he have the vaccine?" Betty White dies a day short of her hundredth birthday. It was the vaccine. A Buffalo Bills football player drops in the middle of the field. Vaccine. So I mean, that's where it becomes literally impossible to talk about yeah, the vaccine because that's how the cottage industry of vaccine controversy or conspiracy has gone that's where it is that's the reality it's not me saying it it's absolutely right there for all to see if you go on social media and see something about the vaccine then it becomes a mindless echo chamber of nonsense well i agree with that that's crazy but the other thing that happened of course is like we had three young men die in november 2021 into december 17 days apart three 2021 22 year old died boys i call them and ultimately all of them were completely healthy beforehand and the first thing the media said was definitely not the vaccine they didn't do autopsies they were cremated how on earth that's that's beyond but isn't the other side of the coin that every or so many people directly associated their death with a vaccination i mean doesn't that just scream exactly what i just said Everyone, you know, died suddenly and all this stuff. We're pretending that people haven't died unexpectedly prior to the pandemic. You know, I mean, seriously. As a medical doctor, you know that that's simply not true. So how does that get factored into a legitimate, realistic and honest conversation about effectiveness or side effects or risk of death or very serious or adverse uh, side effects of one pharmaceutical or another. I mean, we sit down to watch TV, you're inundated with pharmaceutical commercials that rhyme off a laundry list of side effects while people are running down the beach smiling, holding hands. So every single drug under uh, under the sun has a side effect related matter and yet they're prescribed and consumed to copious amounts in North America every single day. Uh, I have to get to the break, Steve, but I appreciate your time. Take good care of yourself. All right, thanks. Have a good day. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, break time.
Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, George. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad, sir. Not Good. too bad. Uh, I'm going to talk about parking in, uh, in St. John's, these new parking stations or whatever they call them. Right, I was into uh, Churchill Square to a doctor's appointment, and uh, I first thing I see is a big computer. Now technology is getting ahead of me, I guess. But uh, I went to try to look at this machine, and uh, we had to do so many prompts it or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the next thing, uh, you know, and I look at it, so I called a guy over who was there, the ticket fella, writing out the tickets, and. Uh, he said, uh, I said, I don't know how to use this. So he said, okay. He said, uh, he said, I'll show you. So he went to show me, and then, of course, you notice the first thing it says is uh, use your credit card or tap only. And uh, I don't have tap on the phone. And I was in there with a 95-year-old uh, old person, and uh, they've got mobility issues, and we got a blue sticker. And all the blue stickers in front of... Shoppers Drug Mart, all those blue places were vacant. And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't, the guy told me if I didn't have tap or satisfied to use a credit card, then I had to, uh, I couldn't park there. So I had to take, I had to leave this person in the lobby and go and try to find a parking spot where there was free parking. And I was 20 minutes with this person standing up inside the Shoppers Drug Mart door there. Waiting for me to uh, uh, waiting for me to get a place to park to get in. So I just wondered why this, uh, you know, why you know, and there's a slot there in the in this machine that you could put your credit card in, but why can't you put your debit card in there? Fair question. I mean, it's it's pretty efficient and helpful if you understand and can use the technology and plus have a credit card in your pocket. I don't know why you can't use a debit card as well. I, I suppose because there's an easy refund option if you uh, deal with a credit card. But, I mean, it's great. It, it works great for me. But that doesn't mean it works great for everyone. No. You know, like I said, I got a debit card and I had this money on my debit card. But, you know, to use a credit card for maybe $4 or $5, for me, seems to be a bit ludicrous. You know what I mean? Right? Well, it certainly know? complicated your life that day. Yes, it sure has. And here are all these parking spots were there, vacant, right in front of Shopper's Drug Mart, right from the main entrance all the way over to the corner of the building. Not one car parked there. And now I got a blue sticker. And... I had to go and move and try to find a place to park. You know, I, I didn't think that uh, I didn't think that that was a, a real good idea. And why is it that you can't? Uh, you know, these guys are there from eight to four or eight to five, whatever time it is. Why isn't it possible that uh, these guys, when they finish their shift, that they can collect coin out of the machine, and then everyone would know that there's no money in the machine, and that way it wouldn't be damaged. 
yeah, we tried that. <laughs> well, and, you know, just even if you think about the city of St. John's, especially in downtown, it was all day, every day. The cost of repair, those meters, which were getting clobbered endlessly, yes. it just became unmanageable. And I know fully why they had to uh, walk away from those because we were just getting robbed blind. And then the, we weren't bringing in nowhere near the amount of money for paid parking that we were spending in replacing meters. No, I, I can understand that part yeah. too, really. But I just, you know... I can go into the health signs and I can pay with cash, you know, right? That I had the machine inside, but I can come out and, and wait to get out through the gate there. And I can, if he says it's $3 or $4, I can give him the money and he can give me back my change and I can go on the merry way. You know? I, I understand your concern. Anything else Bob, before I have to get to a break and try to get back on time here, George? Well, I just wanted to get that off my chest here just because, you know, it's like I really don't want to conduct any business in the city of St. John's anymore. I don't live in St. John's. But, you know, if I got to go through this rigmarole, I guess I really got no desire to want to spend any money in the city of St. John's. Yeah, I, there's only a couple of places, though, right? Downtown and Churchill Square, they're the only places that have those types of uh, parking parameters, right? Okay. Yeah, I think so. I haven't been downtown, to be honest with you, in years, but uh, Churchill Square now, once every two years, I have to go in. There's a couple of eye doctors in there, so I had to go in and get checked out in there. And, you know, just uh, I just thought it was very inconvenient, right? You know, right? To have to, uh, you know, that way you can't use a debit card, right? And I don't understand the reasoning behind that. Someone just sent me a link regarding the pay stations. And it does say you can use a debit card. So okay. well, the guy, you know, well, I had the guy come over, and he was kind of very, he was very nice and helpful. He was going to, you know, show me how to use it. Yeah. But he said that you would only use use a debit card, but you got to have this tap or a flash. Or yeah, you have to. It, it does say you have to have tap. Yeah, right. And I don't have tap now. Again, I'm old-fashioned, maybe, but you know, right. But my debit card is good, but. The slot was there in the machine to put the credit card in. Why couldn't I put my debit card in, you yeah. know, and use the debit card? Here's what it says. Select the payment method using the yellow buttons on the machine. Tap or insert your credit card. Tap is available for debit. Mobile payments, yeah. Apple, Samsung, Google Pay, or credit card. You can insert your credit card if it is not a debit card as well, because that's a thing these days, too, the debit credit cards. Uh, George, I appreciate the time. i got to get to the break, sir. Okay, thank you, buddy. Take care. All the best. Okay, yeah, so I don't know why it would have to be tap only for debit if there's the ability to tap or insert your credit card maybe we can find out uh let's take a break when we come back we're talking healthcare, pride month the fishery whatever's on your mind talk away welcome back to the program let us go to line number four say good morning to the liberal member for bay Vert green bay that's brian work morning brian you're on the air good morning patty how are you very well thanks how about you Good, thank you, and uh, thank you for uh, actually thanks Dave, thank Dave for giving me a call back this morning. I was on the line for Friday, but uh, you guys had a busy show, and uh, certainly appreciate that. But uh, Patty, before I get into my topic, I, uh, there's a there's a big fan of yours, and uh, obviously he's a constituent of mine uh, out of Burlington, Grant Foster. And I promised that uh, the next time I get on, I'd mention Grant's name. He's a huge fan of yours, the uh, the program, and BOCM. So uh, good morning to Grant in Burlington. Absolutely, good morning to you, Grant. Thanks for tuning in the show. Thanks, Patty. Uh, I just uh, I really wanted to call in and uh, obviously express my uh, my gratitude and, and obviously my respect uh, for the people of the Baybert uh, Peninsula, in particular uh, that part of my district, as they uh, came out in uh, full force 
for the demonstration uh, last Tuesday morning. Uh, I left I left my home in Springdale uh, quarter to six uh, to make it to Baybert for uh, for a seven o'clock uh, opening. And Patty, uh, I mean the lot was full at seven o'clock, and uh, we really didn't get underway because we were expecting some media there, and and uh, you know that was for nine o'clock. But uh, I was I was so proud of uh, of the way these people uh, you know came out in droves. Uh, they were very engaged. Uh, in the morning activities and the speakers, uh, listening to the speakers, and they were quite respectful as well. Uh, and there was representation, Patty, from uh, you know from the town community leaders uh, and all all corners of the of the Baver Peninsula, you know from. Westport to Florida Lee and from Middle Arm to the Sea. Uh, I think all 19 communities on the Bay River Peninsula had representation there there that day. Uh, and those who couldn't make it uh, were certainly tuned in to uh, via live stream. Uh, but I want to I want to reach out uh, this morning and um, pay particular thanks to Kyle Payne, uh, who's the chief of the uh, Dorset Trail Regional Fire Department uh, out of Baybert, and his team uh, for putting this together, Patty. And uh, there's no doubt, uh, you know, my uh, my CA in Springdale, uh, you know, Kathleen Hines and I, have listened to many stories, uh, you know, horrific, some of those stories horrific about, uh, you know, people who are going uh, to seek health care, uh, you know, at the Peninsula Hospital, only to find actually the doors being locked. And, and I, I certainly uh you know don't agree with that patty and i know jerry earl spoke to that uh, last tuesday morning about the doors being locked uh, and i've had conversations with minister osborne about the same because you know patty picture yourself uh you know taking a family member of yours uh you know tra- traveling maybe 40, 45 50 minutes uh to get to the hospital in bayvert and and you get there and the doors are locked. I mean, uh, what a feeling! I, I I just put myself in someone's position, and I know I know what I would be thinking. And uh, you know, having to uh, di- divert then to either Springdale if Springdale's uh, emergency room is open, or or if not uh, to Grand Falls, Windsor. Yeah, I mean, 177 kilometers away uh, to Grand Falls, Windsor. Give us some context here for the folks for some numbers. So between May the 5th and June the 8th, uh, those 35 days, the hospital was closed for 20. Six and a half of those. In 2022, the hospital was closed for 16% of the entire year. The ambulance diversion issue is also a big one here. So uh, I can't remember the fellow's name. He runs ambulance service down in the sea. He said it went from 50 calls a year to more than 260 calls a year, and he predicts this, uh, that number would only grow this year. So obviously very real stuff. And one of the ladies that was interviewed, her son had a, a severe allergic reaction, and she wonders out loud whether or not her son would have survived had he had to make the trek to Grand Falls. Windsor and the 177 kilometers that 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 represents so you're on the government side you've mentioned Minister Osborne so if you're willing to bring it to the public airwaves you certainly must have bring it to the minister responsible so how does that conversation go I am, Patty. I've actually had uh, conversations with uh, with uh, Premier Fury as well. I mean, they know my concerns, and 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 Patty, I'm, you know, and Paul Thomas is actually the person that you're speaking about okay. uh, in Lassie, and and I've I've had chats with Paul as well because, uh, you know, not only do we have a, a, sh- a shortage of doctors, uh, we only have one doctor and two nurse practitioners. Uh, you know, they're uh, Baybert's in really good shape with regards to our ends, and if you take the, the hospital here in Springdale, uh, that's the biggest single reason why the ER. Uh, goes on diversion, and that that statement actually was made by Dr. Todd Young, who's a personal friend of mine, uh, and he made that statement to me. That's the biggest single reason. So, you know, we have shortages all over, uh, you know, in, in this district. 
However, uh, you know, I've had, you know, to get back to your question, Patty, I've had several conversations with uh, Mr. Osborne. Mr. Osborne's actually, uh, he's uh, committed to uh, to coming to the district, uh, you know, and having a having a half day down in uh, on the Bayver Peninsula with community leaders and, and key stakeholders uh, to to listen, uh, you know, sit and listen. I mean, Patty, I mean, they put in they put in a you know in, in the recruitment and retention uh, initiative. I mean, there's you know there's untold millions of dollars uh, being invested uh, in the recruitment process. And I know uh, Minister Osborne had shared a figure with me as of May 29th. I think there was 35 intent to offers uh, for the uh, for the Bayward Hospital. Uh, for the Bayver Peninsula, and I think four 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 of those offers uh, were refused, uh, and there's still 31 that we uh, that we need to hear from. And again, uh, I'll make note that was as of May 29th. But you're right. I mean, uh, you know, I know there was a uh, there was a figure, uh, some stats that were uh, actually spoke about on on last Tuesday. Uh, I think there was 79. While uh, Dr. Nakar is the only doctor in, in on the Bayward uh, Peninsula right now, and that's, he's been gone since I think the 29th of May, and 79 percent, 79.8% of the time that he's been gone, there's been uh, no doctor and no virtual, uh, and we've had virtual care for 20.2%, and Paradise just not. Um, it's just not uh, acceptable. I mean, you know, uh, we have, uh, you know, and, and, and I realize, you know, from where government sits, uh, you've heard uh, other MHAs talk about this as well. I mean, you can't mandate anybody, uh, you can't mandate a, a healthcare professional to go anywhere. I mean, they go by choice. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I sort of threw that out at the people uh, last Tuesday morning saying, listen, I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the recruitment part is, you know, that that belongs to us. That belongs to uh, to government and to the uh, healthcare authority uh, authority. But I mean, the the uh, the retain to retain physicians depends on the communities as well uh, at large. I mean, to make sure that you know a doctor who comes to uh, you know our, our district is uh, made to feel welcome and uh, you know and and obviously uh, that that belongs to to the people and the communities on the peninsula. Sure, uh, we, we can incentivize them like we did in Bonavista, New West. Valley, and they were pretty significant uh, incentives dangled in front of uh, doctors, emergency room doctors. I think we can indeed do a little bit more to encourage and or with service agreements for graduates, say, from Mons Medical School or any other uh, publicly subsidized school here for healthcare professionals, an in-service contract, I've long been told it can't work, but it does elsewhere. So if I'm helping fund your education and you're going to be, you plan to be a family doctor or an emergency room doctor or whatever type of doctor, and we say for the subsidy, what we need you to do is to work for three or five years, whatever the number is, in a location where we need your services, and then you leave you up to your own devices. By then, you may be set down roots and might stay so i know we can't force them to but we don't force you to go to mun's medical school either so i think there's more conversation to be had about service agreements i'm a bit late for the news brian but i appreciate the time i really appreciate it as well uh, patty and uh, I'll, I'll tune in again uh, sometime soon appreciate it thank you thank you take care it's brian worries liberal member for bay vert green bay time for the break when we come back marine here next to talk about pride month don't go away Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Marie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, I want to talk about uh, uh, the topic, which is going to be uh, pretty touchy, I know. But uh, Pride, Pride Month, 
who is responsible for that? I don't know what that question means, to be honest. Like, uh, who went and enforced a full month uh, for Pride? I don't think anyone's actually enforcing anything of the sort. You know, like if there's, if November is uh, the month to recognize the contributions of the armed forces, it doesn't mean anybody has to go to an event or it doesn't mean anyone actually has to hold an event. So similar to Pride, I would suggest. So if that awareness month is out there, individual groups or individuals or schools or businesses may take it upon themselves to do something or Major League Baseball teams, but no one's enforcing anything. Well, uh, I find it, I really find it quite disturbing. What's disturbing uh, about it? I, I, I tell you why I find it disturbing, Patty. Okay. You, you brought up about the armed forces just then in your, in your, in your uh, uh, preamble. Um, you know, we've, we've had men and women who gave their lives and went over and fought in our wars to give us our rights and our freedoms well, that we have today. I, I'm not so and, sure. And, I... No, no, hear me out now. Okay. Just hear me out. Okay. We only give them November the 11th uh, to, 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 uh, to celebrate what they did for us, uh, for our rights and freedoms. And then on the other side of the scale, you have a pride, uh, a whole month, a whole month you gave them. I don't know who was responsible, but you gave them a whole month yeah. to, 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 to celebrate uh, uh, what, what, what they believe in. But, of course, and it's not I, about... I find, it's Marie. I find it petty. But, petty. But, Marie. I find it. But, petty. Oh I find it quite disturbing that this is going on. You know, uh, uh, you, you talk, you, you, you know, in St. Matthew's School of the Week, they sent them in there and, 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 and did this in front of innocent little children. Did what? Uh, it, you know, went in and, and, and tried to uh, put their uh, belief system, what they believe is right, on poor little innocent children. And I, I totally, totally disagree with all this. But what did they do to the kids? That's where I kind of get lost in some of these conversations. Well, well, what did anybody fine, do to them? What, 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 what I'm not getting lost, they went into the school and tried to uh, uh, condone what they were doing was, was, was uh, a true thing to be doing. But what were they and doing, though? That's the problem, Marie. Is, so do you think it's a problem for a child that if a drag queen reads them a book... Yes, Why? I do. Because it's the way they're dressed. It's the way they're dressed and presenting themselves. And they're, they're putting over, they're putting over uh, a belief system on that poor little child as that is, is acceptable in society. Well, because it is, and, right? But pardon? It is acceptable. Yeah, but it's but uh, there, but it's not really. It's not really. It's it's not scriptural. It's not scriptural, Patty. And uh, uh, no, but I, not everything what has I find to be. very disturbing is uh, we're putting this over on poor little innocent children, poor little innocent children that are are looking up to adults, a mother and a father, to teach them right and wrong in society. And nobody, and I find it very disturbing, nobody is taking that stand. Nobody is taking that stand. And, you know, what they want to do, 
That's totally up to them. That's their choice, and I believe it is a choice. That's what they chose to do with their life. But you go and do what you want with your life. But don't go hauling poor little innocent children into what your belief system is. But you'd have no problem. But you'd have no problem with... Murray, hold on a second. But you'd have no problem with religion driving the curriculum? Well, it's not, I don't believe in religion, uh, 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 Patty. I thought you said because something about scripture. That's a man-made thing. I believe in Christianity. I believe what Christ did on earth. And uh, uh, we, we, are, we have, are falling so far away from Christianity, it's not even funny. The devil is at work here. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, people uh, shouldn't have to have to listen to Pride Month a whole month. Uh, of what they believe in. But you don't have I to mean, you don't have to participate uh, in anything if you're so inclined. And also, do you think that it would be uh, indoctrinating or shoving something down people's throat if everything inside well, the school was guided point, by Christian Betty, beliefs? That's my point. You're saying I'm shoving something down. I, no, I'm asking you a question, throat. Marie. Just hold on a second, will you, please. Okay, I will. Do you think that it would be the same, like you, people use words like shoving it down people's throats or indoctrination or what have you, if everything inside the school was guided by scripture or anything inside the world of Christian belief, would that not be the same thing? Well, not, well, well that's, uh, the, good. the Lord gave us freedom of choice, uh, freedom of choice. Uh, to choose what uh, to choose the way we will want to go in this society but that comes down to choice and uh, like it all it's all choice uh, they choose that lifestyle the lord didn't the lord didn't create them that way they chose that lifestyle and what? that's uh, you know uh, i what what I, the point i want to make is i i think the world of dear little children and I wouldn't want it, it, I wouldn't want them to be subjected to that kind of lifestyle. I would want them to be brought up in 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 uh, a home that has a mother and a father to guide them, yeah. so they can't even produce. So right there tells you they can't. They, it's not right. They can't. They can't even produce a child. So you know, but, it, well, it's not scriptural. Marie, you're talking so. about lifestyle, but the reality is, outside in society. People, these people exist. As simple as that. Like if it's Marie, please, Marie. Yes. Okay. If you they're not ahead. being sexually provocative, I just, for the life of me, can't understand what the problem is. If some, if a man wearing a dress reads a story or sings a song, or children in a school skip through a rainbow barrier or a rainbow uh, in the school hallway, I don't know how that has hurt any single child in that school. If there's something sexually provocative, then we all, no matter what kind of uh, religious beliefs you have or what side of the political spectrum you fall on. Nobody thinks that children should be exposed to anything sexually provocative, right? But, That's but, true. But, but if someone but, reading a book or singing a song, I just don't know how that falls into the, oh, my goodness, the poor young children. But, but that's how they edge their way in, Patty. The and way to do wrong. what? It's wrong. It's wrong, Patty. It's totally wrong. Okay, Marie. But their, their way in to do what exactly? The what? You're saying it's their way in to do what? They're edging their way in. They're edging their way in uh, slowly. It's like putting a frog in water. If you put a frog in cold water, uh, it, it, it'll stay in the water, and gradually it'll turn up the heat. What will happen to the frog? That's not related right? to this and whatsoever. And that's the same thing, Patty. That's the same thing that's but going on today. Marie. With, 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 the, with these. Yes, Patty. Marie, yes, Patty. you say they're nudging their way in to do, and you didn't finish the sentence, they're nudging their way in to do what? To, to sway these poor little innocent children in their, into their way of life. 
And that's wrong, Petty. That's wrong. I mean, uh, you know, uh, if, if you know your child is going into a burning building, would you try to stop them? Well, from of going course. Into a now, burning building? Doesn't that just sound, when you say it out loud, doesn't that sound just slightly ridiculous? No, no, Petty. So uh, you're, you're we, equating. We after a child if it's going into a burning building? You're equating. You're equating someone reading a book to running into a burning building? Well, uh, you, you know, it's not, it's not the book. It's not the book. It's what they are trying to enforce. And it got nothing to do with the book. It got nothing to do with the book. But they're also anybody can read a book. It's what they're trying to teach these poor little children. But they're, they're not, not in there for the book. They're not enforcing. They're, they're not in there for the book, Betty. They're not enforcing anything, though. See, that's where the conversation gets lost. Here, is that? But, uh, but they are, Patty. How come they got a month? How come they got a month, but Patty? Who, who cares about that, though? Right? I mean, it, it just... I care. I care, Patty, because it's wrong, Patty. Well, it's totally wrong. So, is being a homosexual wrong? Yes. Why? Because it's not scriptural, Petty. But not everyone has to abide by ancient text or the scripture. It's not ancient text. It's, it's the holy word of God, uh, uh, Petty. It's, it's, God's, it's God's holy word. It's scriptural. Yeah, but not everyone and, is... And, and in scripture, when, when God created the earth... He created a man and a woman. He did not create two men and two okay, women. Okay, animals. Marie. Petty. Petty. No, Marie, I, I've got to go, but if you're telling me God created everybody, then God created those people reading those books to those children. He, right? he, he, cre- he created them, but he gave them freedom of choice. That's where, you're, that's where we are, are, are sliding. He gave them freedom of choice to choose the life that they wanted to choose. Right? Yeah, and they've chosen one which is innocuous and has not... There's nowhere that proves or displays that these people are putting anybody, a drag queen is putting anybody in physical, emotional, sexual danger. It's just not what's happening, though, right? That's my problem with these conversations is we've taken some of these uh, issues in society. We've exaggerated them to the nth degree where people are worried for their child's safety. No child was hurt at St. Matthew's School that day. The reaction to it could put people in absolutely distinct harm and at risk of physical harm, which I think is a, something that doesn't get acknowledged by people who have a distinct problem with Pride Month, and no one's enforcing Pride Month. If you want to participate as an adult like yourself in a Pride event, you do or you don't, and that's kind of the beauty of it. Uh, I appreciate the time, Marie. I'm late for the break. You take good care. Okay. God bless you. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Stan wants to talk about the fishery. Best kind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Stan, you're on the air. Hi, Petty. Hi. Um, you just had a fisherman on there a few calls back. Yep. And he was mentioning about the problems going and coming, how much to bring in. I, I, I know people in the fishery, and I hear the same thing from them. Uh, Petty, there's a show on uh, Discovery Channel. I don't know if you know about it. It's 1130 Monday nights, East Harbor Heroes. You're I've seen it advertised, but I've never watched it. Well, I watched it a few times, Petty. It's, it shows all the workings of uh, Ocean X down there and the fishery also. Okay. Uh, I watched it where um, Quinlan's, there you go, He was, uh, Quinlan's was mentioned. Uh, he mentioned about one of their boats probably going out. They got 11 boats, Petty, it was mentioned there, at 11. And they're gearing up uh, one of their boats then with automatic bait up for cod. They were doing four. They mentioned this one, but they're doing four. It's going to cost a million dollars, $250,000 per boat. And they got 11 boats. Now, th- what they're going to do is send their boats out, and, and probably no quarter. They get what they're allowed to get and come on in with it. Uh, the smaller boats, 
uh, they're told when to go and when to come in and how much to bring in. They're going to have to make extra trips, cost me extra money. Yep. But Quinlan's got 11 boats. I don't know if you know that or not. That's what it said on that show. If they get 11 boats, I don't know if they're buying up uh, enterprises from fishermen that's, that's, you know, giving it up and that. But what's going to happen, though, uh, in, in one of those days, Patty, is uh, there'll be no one fishing, only the plant owners and their boats and their crews. All, all the other guys will be out of business. I think some of this got complicated this year with the decision to tie up for six weeks. Yeah. It just yeah. kind of made things worse. I know they were frustrated. And, you know, obviously there's a big sticker shock when you go from $7 plus per pound of snow crab down to $2.20. But the market doesn't really care what the union or the Association for Seafood Producers think. So I really do think that, you know, I think it's a fair question to ask. What was accomplished? Not yeah. much beyond a sliding scale for improving the price if the market improves, but basically we just further complicated an already complicated uh, fishing season by tying up for six weeks. Now, people get uh, yeah. mad at me for saying that, but so be it. Yeah. I, I'm not a fisherman, never was, but I know people in the fishery, I know the problems they're facing. And uh, like I said, I, I always said, I don't think the planters should have quotas. It was quota for that area. I, I think the, the, the community should have the, uh, the, the uh, quota, the license. And plant owners, I know plant owners done over the years. Barry done it. Bought, bought a plant, closed it down, and took the quota, you know, the license, and moved elsewhere. I mean, that's been on, on, the, on the go for years. They, they don't care about the, the, the fishermen out there. They, they'll own everything one of those days. They own a lot of it now. And, and that's what they do. They have their own boats, their own crews, which they do have now. I'm just talking about Quinlan's. I don't know about the other guys, how many boats they have. And there'll be no one fishing. Now, some of the 65 footers probably uh, Newfoundlanders offshore and that. But all the inshore will be gone. And you'll hear uh, back probably from inshore fishermen. They'll tell you the same thing. It'll be all over with one of those days. Uh, the plant owners like Quinlan's, they'll have it all. They got their own boats, their own crews. Those arrangements are actually against the law. You know, yeah. th this was settled in court there a number of years ago, but I mean, the law is only effective if it's enforced. Yeah, I, I, when, when a fisherman wants to give it up and sell his enterprise, as they say, I don't think a, a, a plant owner should be allowed to buy it. Either another fisherman should be able to buy it, not a plant owner, because they'll have too many one of those days, and that's it. But, Patty, it'd be interesting. I know 11.30 at night, you probably uh, got to get up early in the morning to go do I your do. show, but yeah. it's worth looking at that show, eh? I can always set a PBR. I mean, that's one thing I can yeah, always yeah, do. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Discovery Channel, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how many boats anybody owns, but I do know that those types of uh, arrangements are, have been deemed, and there was actually a fellow from Labrador who was part of the court case in Nova Scotia that made a ruling quite clearly on that front. Uh, I appreciate the uh, time this morning. Anything else, Dan? No, no, like I said, I don't know how many they own, but that was said on that show that Quinlan's got 11. I don't know. I honestly God, don't yeah. know if they have 1 or 11 or 50. I, I have no earthly idea. But I okay, do know that those... I, like I said, that's all I wanted to say... Okay. Uh, I, I heard, uh, and I see that show, and I just wanted to put my two cents word in. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. All the Bye. best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number one. Allison, you're on the air. Hi there. Hi. Um, I would like to follow up. I'm, I'm a registered nurse, okay. and I'd like to follow up on what another uh, caller spoke about a little while ago about data collection and COVID vaccines. And... Uh, um, I've only got so much power left on my phone. I'm a little nervous also to speak publicly because <laughs> health professionals have been discouraged and sometimes disciplined for criticizing uh, public health measures over the last few years. Um, so I'll just keep myself focused on the data collection piece, if that's okay. I could talk for hours about the whole uh, many different aspects, but I'd like to just focus on that. No problem. Um, 
So what's supposed to happen with, with drugs and vaccines is that we are supposed to report when there's an adverse event um, that we, whether we know it was related to the vaccine or not. So Health Canada has a process. They have a form called the AEFI, Adverse Events Following Immunization. And what's supposed to happen is when there's an adverse event that happens to someone after they've had a vaccine, it's supposed to be reported um, whether or not we know or think it's due to the vaccine. It's called adverse events following vaccine immunization, sorry, not adverse events because of immunization. Right. So we're not supposed to investigate it before we report it. We're supposed to just report it. And I honestly thought when we first decided to roll out these um, new vaccines with an abbreviated research process, I thought, uh-oh, but, you know, we're in a pandemic. We need to do things differently. So I thought as long as we're tracking potential side effects well and we're ready to make a change if need be, like if we determine a certain population of people are doing worse than others then we wouldn't give it to them, whatnot, then I figured as long as we're tracking this carefully, and we make a change if need be, then we have to do this. We're, we're in a pandemic and we need to do things differently. Uh, and I actually thought that across the country, um, I'm from Newfoundland, I'm home visiting now, but I, I'm a nurse and I, I work in Nova Scotia. And I thought that every nurse and every health professional, because they have emails for everybody, that we would all get a copy of that form and we would be told, make sure you get this filled out properly. I thought they might even make it more user-friendly and make it easier for the public to fill out their own so health professionals could stay focused on other things. But we didn't do that, and we actually went completely the other way. Um, We didn't track the data. Um, I can give you a long list of people who had different problems that they tried to report them, and the report wasn't accepted. Um, So they're incredibly, the problems that people had were very underreported. And, you know, I know we wanted to, for people to have confidence in something, but if, if, I don't think we were transparent enough about that. I know of people, if I just think of neurological problems alone, I know of people who have reported or tried to report, they weren't accepted, seizures, Bell's palsy, trigeminal neuralgia, tinnitus or tinnitus, tremors, new movement disorders, shingles, cognitive changes, advanced dementia, uh, exacerbation or progression of multiple sclerosis, lupus, ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. And that's just the neurological problems, and they were not accepted. So, What leads you to believe they're all directly uh, related to a vaccination? Well, see, that's the thing. We're not supposed to determine that before it's investigated. So the way the process is supposed to go is that um, adverse events following immunization are supposed to be reported. And then if there's something that's serious, like a death or disability or hospitalization, then they investigate it right away. Um, If it's not a serious event, then they leave it in the database. And if a pattern shows up, then they investigate according to that pattern. But Isn't that appropriate? Pardon me? Isn't that appropriate? Oh, yeah, I think that is appropriate. That's the way it's supposed to go, but we didn't do it. We didn't follow the process we had in place. (laughs) Um, We we have not been reporting um, 
adverse events following uh, immunization uh, anywhere near adequately. And quite often when people try to report them, they are told things like, oh, that's not from the vaccine. And as a nurse of 40 years and a darn good one, um, I know that we don't know what it's from. So we're supposed to collect the data so that we're able to look at it later. (laughs) Um, So if we don't have the data, we don't have the data. So that's that's a really unfortunate um, thing that I have seen um, since we rolled out the vaccines. And I honestly thought, I I never dreamed that we would mandate them. We had such a high um, vaccination rate um, in the Atlantic provinces. Like we had a really high vaccination rate and then they mandated them. Um, I think that was more of a political move from from what I see um, with the, um, the Liberal government and the election happening at that time and whatnot. But, um, yeah, but anyway, I just I wanted to put that out there, that that is something that I I know we did wrong. And we need to be able to discuss and debate like, you know, as as a registered nurse, I'm supposed to be a critical thinker. That means I'm supposed to criticize. <laughs> I'm supposed to be analytical and, and, and look at things carefully and not accept um, just the first thing I see. You know, we're, we're supposed to uh, um, to be very methodically. Uh, critical about things, but throughout the pandemic, I know we wanted people to have confidence in the measures that we came out with from public health. Um, We didn't want people to be confused. So with public health, we try to have very consistent, simple messages so that everybody can understand and follow through. And, you know, that's how we usually try to do public health things. But when you're using a brand new vaccine that is brand new technology, and I know we know it's been around for 20 years, but it hasn't actually been used successfully. For yeah, well, years. of course, MR, mRNA uh, work in the laboratory began sometime in the 70s. But, Alison, just let me yeah. ask you a question. So, you, you know, it was about the liberals, but weren't there mandates in provinces across the country with NDP leadership, with conservative leadership? There were, though, right? I meant, I, I meant from the federal level. Okay, because... Um, no, very, very, I know that the, that um, health is supposed to be provincially determined and whatnot, but, um, you know, with the pandemic, we, we um, some things were definitely different province to province, but in general, the, the direction came from the federal government to say, you know, this is, is what we're doing uh, with all the federal employees and whatnot, and then it kind of trickled down, you know, and, and out, so... Um, it's the leadership really did come from um, the prime minister's office, it seems. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, even if you just say one of the most conservative uh, provinces in the country in Alberta, uh, then Premier Kenny putting mandates in place, actually offering to pay people cash <laughs> to come get a vaccine. So I'm not so sure I this know, was straight up yeah. liberals versus Tories kind of stuff. Oh, no, no. And I didn't mean to uh, to, to say to imply that it was because I think that's also part of the problem is that we're too polarized here. Uh, it's like black, white, right, wrong. There's so much in between. Like, yes. we need to get in the center here. We need to talk about things, and we need to realize that um, no one person, no one party, no one group knows everything. Absolutely we right. We need to be able to talk about things, which means we need to listen to each other. <laughs> and um, I, I was I was actually quite surprised with how we... Um, how we promoted the vaccines even before we mandated them. Um, it was more, I, I was expecting a lot of education, um, make them very accessible to people, make it easy for people to get them and educate people. But I also expected that we would do more about um, 
teaching people how you strengthen your immune system. Yeah, we didn't talk enough yeah. about, you know, yeah. other other impacts on your immune system. But let's also yeah. remember that when the vaccine was being developed, people all political stripes were clamoring for it to come to pass right now. I mean, I remember being yeah. told by a certain part, political party that we weren't even going to see a vaccine until 2027 or 2028, and here we are. And so they wanted it right away, but then, of course, they didn't want it when it became politically expedient for them to all of a sudden be opposed to something. So they really wanted it both ways there, which is, I think, yeah. to your point, yeah. is that if it's politically advantageous, then people are going to take that approach, which has been really problematic for all of us add to it the whole issue regarding reductive thinking you know the exact opposite of critical yeah. thought so if everything is oversimplified to the point where uh, wildfires arson climate change hoax drag queen pedophile I mean that's where we've found ourselves here it's easy it's intellectually lazy it's extremely harmful and it's the antithesis of actual critical thought here which is just woefully absent in so many of these yeah, important I, I conversations. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Patty. I think it's so. So when I turned on the radio and you know someone was talking about some of the criticisms that they have of how things have been managed and some of the information that they've come across, um, I thought, well, this is great that people are, are are listening to each other now, and and maybe we'll have more of that happen because we really need that. We've become incredibly polarized, and and what I've seen. As a health professional, um, I see healthcare has been taken over by politicians and the pharmaceutical company. You know, yeah. the politicians are about uh, being in power, and the pharmaceutical companies are about making a profit. And yes, we benefit from many of the drugs that we use and whatnot, but the the purpose of them existing is to make money. Um, and so we had the pharmaceutical industry and politicians making the decisions about healthcare more so than health professionals. Um, and like what I saw happen in Nova Scotia, we actually had um, health a couple of doctors who spoke out early days uh, about some concerns they had. One was an emergency room uh, manager. He, he worked in, in eMERGE and also managed multiple emergency uh, departments um, around Cape, the area of Cape Breton. And he spoke out about some concerns he had and... Um, he uh, was removed from his role, and they were legitimate concerns. He was seeing problems, and he spoke out about them, and he lost his job. And that silenced other people. So um, there were other, other physicians who, you know, spoke to me about some concerns they had, and I said, well, can't you bring that to the College of Physicians and Surgeons? Can't you bring that to, to public health? And they said, no, they were afraid to. But some of it, we also have to question the veracity of some of the thoughts or comments or warnings or whatever that some people were bringing to bear. I know one healthcare professional that absolutely deserved to be sanctioned by the college because some of the stuff that the person was getting on was, was outrageous. Completely and utterly yeah, outrageous. It wasn't about asking questions. Okay. I do have to get yeah. to the break, Allison. I appreciate your time this morning, though. Thank you. Thank you. Take bye care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break. Gord wants to talk about propane. Then we're going to talk about net zero pathway, some interesting work being done. The summer bike project coming from the good folks at Rotary Club St. John's East. Gloria's there as well. I appreciate your patience. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go. Is that three, Dave, that you just held up? Two. Okay, let's go to line number two. Gord, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Okay, how about you? 
Great, great, great. I can ask you, what is the price of propane per liter today? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Uh, you got a computer in front of you. <laughs> yeah. I had to pull that one out. Okay. Uh, the cost of propane versus other fuels has remained remarkably consistent. Very small spikes up or down when compared to other uh, fuels that were are on the market. Okay. What price per liter? Dollar, two, dollar, three, I think you dollar four, something like that? Yeah, 98.9 cents. Okay. Recently, we went to a place to get propane. $1.39 a liter. Now, is that not ripping you off? I can go down the road. They're not open on the weekends. Is there only a dollar something a liter? Okay. So how do we think of this house? How do a service station charge $1.39 a liter? Well, the prices, the prices are set at, as a maximum, which is something that kind of gets lost in the shuffle here. So when the PUB comes out with their numbers, they tell retailers what the maximum price they can charge is. And some retailers do exactly that. They'll charge you exactly what the PUB says they're allowed to charge. Others will charge less. Sometimes that keeps their customers or brings in new customers to their business. So that's how the price setting works. Well, listen to the public utilities board, thirty nine. I go down the street to say, I won't say the name of the company, and they, they're they big. There's only two really big companies here to refill your propane besides a gas station. Gas station charging $1.39. They're charging $1.02, $1.03. Well, a report them, I'd call the PUB next after you hang up with me. Here it is. As of the 8th of June, 2023, regular self-serve gasoline, 167.7. Diesel, 159.3. Furnace oil, 110.91. Propane, 98.9. Ninety-eight nine, and they're charging $1.39 a litre. You can call and ask the PUB how that's allowed to happen. Uh, well, it's one in Grand Falls. Uh, well, I can't get through to them. Try that. Not answering the phone. But it's, uh, I, I, I didn't think anything in this world. How greedy can people get? Down the road, a dollar two. Up the road, a dollar thirty-nine. It's, it don't make sense. Well, people make choices with their pocketbook, right? So if I want to spend uh, money to fill up my propane and I can go this direction, I go left and pay a dollar two, or go right, pay a dollar thirty-nine, I'm going left. Well, the way I look at it, I think what you just said is right, is that if they're not open, you've got to pay the extra few dollars. Yeah, but next thing I would do, I have a toll-free number. You can call the Public Utilities Board, their board of commissioners, who established the maximum price for all fuels, and I have a toll-free number if you'd like to try them. I already got it. I'm at the phone, and I can't get through to him yet. Okay. Tried, but maybe they will. But, I mean, it, it threw me for a loop. It's like going to a gas station, and uh, say it's a dollar nine, and I go to the next one, it's a dollar twenty-nine. Right. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I don't know how we can figure that out yet. Well, like I said, if I have options to spend less, but not having to drive all over the place to save a couple of cents a liter, I'll go to the cheapest location close by where I live. That's how I think most people proceed. Well, most of them, yeah, Costco or the big ones, you know, on the RV or whatever it is, they, they, they're, they're pretty good. They're, they're the same price, except for Costco's a little bit lower. But, you know, you spend just as much gas trying to get it, what you're not getting well, if you only go for gas, then that's a conversation people have with themselves. If we get uh, gas at Costco's because we also went to shop at Costco. So we will do our groceries and on the way out get some gas and or fill, refill the barbecue propane tank. So we kill all the birds we possibly can with that drive out to Galway. Now we, now we know 
how things can operate. When someone has a good business going, they can get the good clientele, and they can keep that clientele. That clientele makes that business run. Costco is one of the biggest clientels we have in Newfoundland. One of the biggest what? Clientele. What? Again, propane, food, you name it, they got it. Cheap. Yeah, what, how does that constitute being a clientele? I'm not sure what that means. Or are you trying to say cartel? Oh, it could be cartel or clientele. Oh. Same thing. They, 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 they rule the roost. But, of course, people don't have to shop at Costco either. Oh, listen, if I got to go shopping, if I can get a cheaper at Costco, I'm gone. Well, then... I'm gone right to Costco. Okay. Like, a little confused or not. So, yeah, we, well, they got the gas, they got the propane, they got the food, they got, the, they got everything there. It's a one-stop stop shop deal. It's the busiest Costco in the country uh, out of Galway, and it's madness in there all day long, every single day, which I don't really like going to Costco. My wife does the Costco run. I do the grocery store run for other items that we don't need in bulk fashion from a place like Costco. Uh, I appreciate the time. Uh, Gord, good luck, and go buy some cheaper propane than the expensive stuff. Now, I'm going to talk to the boss down to the place where I get it, and he might be able to explain it a bit better, but sure. he uh, got my little goats up on that one. Uh, I understood. I understand the concern. I uh, appreciate the time this morning. Thank you very much, Patty. Hey, good show. Love you. If I don't get you in the day, I get you every God bless it night, buddy. I don't care. I got to stay up and listen to you. I'm doing it. I appreciate Bye-bye. that and sweet dreams. Oh, don't even talk about that. I got dream when I'm listening to you. I got to listen to you in the night. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Gord. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. <laughs> Let's take a break. When we come back, Emmanuel DaCosta from Iron and Earth Pathways. He's the development lead. Talk about net zero pathways. And then Laurie Twells, my good friend, Dr. Laurie Twells. She's the president of the Rotary Club of St. John's East. Talk about the summer bike program. And Misty is a drag queen. Reads the kids. Then Gloria. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. John reminds me via email something that I knew, and it just floated right out of my head. The PUB sets the price of propane for home heating. Not for barbecue tanks or anything else. That's up to the businesses at that price. That's absolutely true. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to Emmanuel DaCosta from Iron and Earth Pathways. He's the development lead on the Net Zero Pathways Initiative. Good morning, Emmanuel. You're on the air. And good morning. I have to tell you right now, this has been one of the most illuminating radio shows I've listened to in a good long while. You guys are doing a killer job over there. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's uh, illuminating is one way to put it. Uh, okay. Right. Thanks to some $16 million from the Government of Canada's Sector Workforce Solutions Program, you're bringing mm-hmm. forth this Net Zero Pathways initiative. What exactly are you working on? Okay, so it's a kind of a two-pronged program. So one, Net Zero Pathways helps businesses as well as individuals who are looking for work. We've got a challenge right now in Canada. We've got a growing renewable energy sector where businesses are having a really, really difficult time finding workers. We also have a shrinking, uh, for example, fossil fuel sector where those workers don't fully understand where their skills can go. Net Zero bridges those gaps because some of those workers will be the perfect fit for the renewable energy sector. Um, same as the case with any other trade or, or things of that nature. So what we try to do in the Net Zero Pathways program is provide the bridge, if you will, between businesses and individuals, unions and other organizations, to ensure that those workers and all Canadians get to partake in what is probably going to be the fastest and most aggressively growing economic sector that we've ever faced. I mean, the country has a skills shortage anyway, even when the federal government talks about $1.5 million 
million uh, five million immigrants over the course of three years, specifically targeting issues like skilled trades. When people, for instance, working in the fossil fuel industry and knowing mm-hmm. that I don't know when peak oil is, I don't know how long those jobs will persist, but we do know that the growth sector is on the clean side. So the opportunity to uh, upskill or to transition, they've already got a lot of the skills in place to make said transition. And I would imagine most people, they don't care if they're working on a drill rig or in the clean tech sector. So how transferable are most of their skills, problem solving, technological background and otherwise? Okay. Well, there's there's two things. Uh, One, uh, you suggested the skills are already there. The problem is, even though the skills are there, the education is not there to let the market know that the skills are there. So, for example, I was speaking to someone recently who's an electrician, and he says, you know what, I would love to work in solar, but I don't have the skills. The transition time to go from electrical to photovoltaic is three days. That's it. Right. So I think providing that information to the populace in terms of what's available is where net zero pathways come in. We have, I'll give you an example, on our platform, this thing called the Climate Career Portal, where you can actually go into the Climate Career Portal um, and type in whatever it is job you're currently in. And it will let you know where your skills are transferable, because it's not just transferable to one or the next. It's literally across the spectrum. There's a lot of opportunities second part you talk about the soft skills right the analytical skills the creative skills the writing skills and all those other things there isn't a single solitary business to renewable energy that doesn't require the same skills as every other sector of the economy so if you're an accountant you can work in renewable if you are a i don't know technical writer you can work in renewables the options are amazing yeah, if you're an electrician or a, a plumber or a millwright or what have you, mm-hmm. there's an opportunity for you there. Or you're in the tech sector because tech is actually part of every single thing that we touch and feel in every business that's in operation. So these skills yeah. are transferable. He said or that if you're a secretary. 100%. So you said that maybe the skills are there, but either the business community or the individuals don't know that the opportunity to transition to upskill is not there. So how do you create that? Because are you asking uh, companies and individuals to come to you or are you creating a campaign and an awareness that we can come to you and describe exactly where the opportunities are and how you can satisfy them? That is a brilliant question. It's no wonder you're so popular. Um, Well, one, we actually do both. So we reach out to businesses and ask them, what are your needs? We reach out to indigenous communities and ask them, what are your needs? We reach out to individual groups and ask them, what are your needs? And then based on those conversations, we bring those parties together. So Our Net Zero Pathways program, for example, we have an educational piece where folks who are interested in learning about Net Zero Pathways can actually send us a message at netzero.inearth.org. They can come in in in, in a classroom context, like virtual, and we will educate them about renewable energies and and, um, opportunities in the renewable energy sector. Right. And the cool thing about that is that when you come through that process, we actually pay you to learn which is a great incentive for folks to at least take a chance and learn a bit more about it. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is we will actually go to any community or any group or any business organization, uh, union or otherwise, and we will do a presentation not just on net zero pathways, but also the opportunities to find employees in the net zero pathway sector. That, that is one of the key things, right? And one of okay. the upsides, of course, of this transition people refer to it as just transition or 
otherwise, whatever uh, label people want to use, fair enough, is that there's also people are familiar with what they have. They understand how it works. They understand how they get paid. There's some more flexibility, I would suggest, in the the clean tech sector. There's also the worry that people have about wraparound supports. You know, whether Mm -hmm. or not I have some flexibility for some summer scheduling because I know my industry, I know the company I work for. So whether it be childcare or flexible summer schedules, anything involved in your work, your research and your campaign here that deals with wraparound support? Oh, I love when clever people read my mind. The next thing we're going to talk about is the fact that we do actually offer wraparound support. So as you come to that training piece that I mentioned earlier, we'll provide you with wraparound support, including health, including, um, not health care, including child care, meals, transportation if necessary. Uh, as you get into the workplace, we'll provide you with the funding for your, your PPEs, your safety boots, et cetera. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of support built into the, into the program. The objective here, my good sir, is to make it as easy as possible for one to transition over. Now, in terms of the term transition, we are not telling people who work in the fossil fuel industry <laughs> that you necessarily have to go into this sector. Here's what we are offering. We are offering an opportunity to diversify your skill set so that if for any reason there is a dip in your industry, you've got the skills to transition over and maintain your economic viability um, within the context of renewable energies. There are going to be some folks in some provinces who during certain times of the year, they're going to be working in, um, in fossil. And other times of the year, the only opportunity available for them is renewable. This allows a person to take advantage of the full economy, no matter what their skill set or background may be. It's, you know, some people will, they'll be just really polarized on these types of issues because they think that one political ideology or another is trying to squash one sector in favor of another, playing the old winners versus losers games. Right. But global demand, global transition is happening whether or not we like it. So if, for, for, if I had my druthers, getting out in front will be less costly, less chaotic, and better for the economy, better for the individual, better for trying to deal with cost of living issues. So doing things before they're just ultimately necessary and we're too late to the game, we're going to leave a lot of people behind and it's completely unnecessary. Absolutely. I, for example, I grew up in Quebec, right? In Quebec, we had brutal winters. So in the winter, I had a winter job working at a skating rink, right? In the summer, I had a summer job working in the park. My winter job would not work in the summer because there is no ice. Similarly, if you're working, I'll give an example, in the tar sands in Alberta, you're not doing that in June, July, and August. It's too hot. So, we can be, those individuals can have the opportunity to work on wind turbines, can work on um, you know, solar farms and so on, right? So the idea here is to diversify their skill set and provide opportunities for not just the workers who are already established, but the workers who are coming in. So you are correct. We are indeed trying to get out front of this, right? It's like, I'm sure you've heard the adage, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. 100%. And curiously, or to Mm -hmm. juxtapose what happened in this province, during a bit of the oil collapse because travel stopped and all the rest of it, the federal and provincial governments put together a pot of money. I think the total was some $375 million, all for Mm -hmm. supporting the industry, not the the individuals, but the companies. So had we recognized what you folks are doing right now, and this is zero zero, net zero pathways initiative, you should have had some of those monies. If someone had to say, you know what? 
I really have some concerns with the long-term viability, but I know a company and uh, someone in my social circle that is involved in the clean tech, I'd love to transition to it. We didn't support those individuals. We gave money to companies. And it just really came across to me as a glaring misstep with, you know, there was an opportunity right there. We didn't seize and consequently, we rely on different pots of funding to do the exact same thing. Absolutely. And you know, my grandmother always said, lessons learned are never in vain. And that was a valuable lesson that I think the sectoral workforce solutions learned. And so much of the resources that we have is geared towards either directly to the, um, the consumer, namely the people, or to the organizations to help them bring people on board. So if you're a worker and you are trying to diversify your skill set so you can actually get into renewable energy. We provide you with the support that you need, the educational that you need, the background that you need to make those transitions, which is very different to, as you mentioned before, where it was all about the businesses, right? What we're also doing is if you're an up-and-coming business in the renewable sector, if you're trying to transition your business over to the renewable sector, one of your most difficult resources to find is going to be human capital. Finding people is a challenge, and that makes a lot of Canadian businesses, especially businesses at least, um, less competitive. Our program provides both their financial resources, the educational resources to allow those businesses to be competitive and give the workers an opportunity to also be competitive in a workforce that is rapidly changing. And becoming more and more competitive. Emmanuel, before I have to get to the news, would you like to share some contact info if anyone would like to reach out? Absolutely. If you're interested in, in, in a program and you're a business, you may reach us at netzero at ironatearth.org. If you're an individual who loves to come into our program, you can reach us at admissions at ironatearth.org, and we would be delighted to talk to you. And heck, even if you just have questions, reach out to us. We'll be happy to answer them for you. This is what we're here for. We're here to sort of provide everyone, all Canadians, in, especially all folks down east, Uh, the information and and insight that they'll need to make this very, very smooth transition into the renewable energy sector if they are so inclined. Good to have you on the show, Emmanuel. Thanks for the time. Oh, the pleasure was entirely mine. And again, great job you guys are doing. Very illuminating. Thank you. Stay in touch. I shall. Cheers. Okay, bye Mandel Dacasa is the uh, development lead on the Net Zero Pathways Initiative. All right, that was good. Let's take a break. Misty, stay right there. Misty's a drag queen, reads the kids. Uh, Laurie Twells uh, from the Rotary Club of St. John's East tell us about the summer bike program, which is really good stuff. And Gloria wants to talk COVID from what angle? We'll find out. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the president of Rotary Club of St. John's East. That's Dr. Laurie Twells. Dr. Twells, you're on the air. Thank you. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Let's talk You're about the summer a busy bike program. Yes, we are having a busy morning, an interesting <laughs> morning. So, the summer bike program, it's been a big success in the past. So, what exactly are you doing? So this is the fourth year of the project. Uh, I'm president, current president of the Rotary Club of St. John's East. And really, it's a project that kicked off during the pandemic when we were trying to find things to do to help support our community. And we started putting a call out for bikes to, you know, just just in people in and around St. John's as to people who had bikes in their sheds and their garages and kids had outgrown bikes. And 
we were overwhelmed the first year, actually, with uh, the amount of support that we got from the community. So this is our fourth year running the project. We've got posters up and about on social media. Uh, we're collecting bikes. This is the last week we're collecting bikes um, before we actually do our kind of full day on Saturday where we tune up the bikes and do a bit of a safety check and get the p- tires pumped up and get them ready to give back out to the community. And so we've got two more drop-off dates this week. So that's really what we're what I'm really interested in trying to get out to the public is that we're still collecting bikes this week on Wednesday and Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. At, uh, the, the bikes are being dropped off at 942 Topsail Road. We've got warehouse space there thanks to Rick O'Neill. Uh, it's a real community initiative. We work with a lot of partners in the community, including Canary Cycles, who help us then actually uh, buy helmets at cost because the helmets, we, we like to give a helmet with every bike um, when we give them out to kids and families. And it's been a huge success. Last year we had about 300 bikes come in. We're looking for, you know, sort of, there's only so much we can manage. We obviously don't want to be overwhelmed, but we, we certainly like to bring in a 200 or 250 bikes to actually get ready to give back out. And uh, we're just letting the community know we're doing it again. It's helpful. So this is not an opportunity to throw away a bike that is of no value to anybody. Exactly. Um, I mean, the thing is, we're looking for, you know, kind of gently used bikes. And to be honest, the bikes that we get in are often in excellent shape. We even get some almost seem to be new bikes. But, of course, kids outgrow bikes, and they haven't been hardly used, and nobody knows what to do with them. Nobody wants to bring a bike to the dump. Um, But the question is, what do you do with it? And and people are not often always interested in selling them either. So they kind of just stick around in people's houses. So, um, you know, we obviously can't fix bikes that are really not working, so to speak, in terms of brakes and things. But we do have mechanics that come in with some of the biking groups. They, they give us their day. They're not part of the Rotary Club. Uh, we are connected with these people. They come out. They set themselves up in the in the warehouse, and they go through all the bikes. They're washed. The tires are pumped. Uh, we safety check them. They're marked with a little ribbon. And then we're giving them out to some of the, our adopted schools in the community or families in, in the sort of inner city that can't afford bikes, uh, clients at the gathering place, some of the other uh, newcomer families. We often have people reach out to us as well actually who you know specifically send me an email just to say they're somebody living in the community they don't have a vehicle can't afford a bike is it possible to put their name on the list to have a bike for transport uh, or for getting around etc and we we usually mark those people and try and get them bikes as well so uh, i would imagine this is bikes for all ages and boys and girls all ages, boys and girls, adults, children, scooters are welcome too, okay. little three-wheelers, etc. Um, what we found in the last few years is, is the number of adults that actually come forward as well. Um, some of them are just not able to maybe purchase a bike at this point in time, but they want to get a little bit more active. They're trying to, you know, kind of take part in the active transport. And as a city, I think it's still challenging, but we're moving towards more active transport and we're seeing more bikes on the roads. We've certainly got our new e-bike initiative now going on downtown. So I think people are feeling more comfortable on bikes as well. Uh, so I think there's all sorts of reasons why people would like a bike. Um, but so it's all all ages and, like you say, you know, boys and girls, etc. I appreciate the time this morning, Dr. Wells. And you mentioned the three, like the little tricycles. What were the ones we rode when we were small? The, the Winkies? <laughs> the little Winkies, that's right, exactly. <laughs> and, they're, and they're coming back, actually. They're are coming they? back. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's some. we've got some three-wheelers in the warehouse there now. 
um, and uh, it's great to see those. And like I said, like little scooters and things too. So really all go, even the little ride-ons for, you know, toddlers, so to speak, um, because a lot of the families, especially the newcomer families, they might have kids who are maybe 8, 10, and teens, but actually when you go to the house, they've also got, you know, a 2- or 3-year-old. And so we often have these little ride-on bikes, and, and we'll just say, look, here, take a couple of these as well, and, and you know, they go away. And it's it's like Christmas for, for some families when you've got bikes now for the whole summer that kids can get out on. So if the weather picks up, uh, it's all good. And if it doesn't, you will probably see kids on bikes as well. Sounds great. Give the folks the details for the drop-offs one more time. So this Wednesday and Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. at a warehouse, or it's at the old Nissan dealership on Topsail Road. So it's 942 Topsail Road. We'll have a bike kind of placed out front, and I think that's been helpful for people because you're driving down Topsail Road. It's difficult to see, but it's close to the Sharks um, chair kind of arena, if people know that area. Um, But it's an open warehouse, so we're storing all our bikes in there. But there's people out and about, and there's people with bikes, so, you know, you, you should be able to see it from 6 to 8 p.m. Wednesday and Thursday this week. Sounds great. Thanks for the time this morning, Dr. Twells. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. That's Laurie Twells. She's the president of the Rotary Club of St. John's East. If you have a bike that you think might find a new home, do exactly that. Okay, let's go to line number eight. Gloria, you're on the air. Gloria, on line number eight. Okay, I'll put her on hold, and let's go ahead and take a break. We'll come back and see if Gloria's there after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number eight. Gloria, you're on the air. I said the wrong name. <laughs> okay, first thing I'd like to say is that thank you to the police. Instead of complaining, you know what? We should be thanking them because they found Melissa pretty fast. You know what? Okay, and uh, Patty, I listened to your show uh, that was last week sometime, and you're talking about the uh, eye drops, glaucoma, but I never heard all of it. Uh, were you saying anything that was wrong with eye drops? Yeah, so that story was in the national news, as a matter of fact. So there was two what? drugs, Ilea and Lucentis. They are God, they're distributed in these single-use vials, and some pharmacy on the mainland was splitting the doses, consequently getting more bang for their buck, making more money. But the, the thought there was that you're not allowed by law to split those doses. They may indeed be contaminated. They may indeed be hurting people, and that's the story. Basically. And what's and and what kind of drops was it? Was it for glaucoma? No, it was for uh, age-related macular degeneration. Okay, because I got glaucoma, right? And I was using drops, right? But the yeah. So when I heard that, well, I I thought it was the for the glaucoma. So that's good. That's good then. Jeez. Yep. Yeah, because I only got I only uh, have vision in one eye, right? Okay. And I'm trying to save that eye. And you know what? My vision started to get bad in the eye because I went to the eye specialist, right? But then after I went and started researching everything, right? And you know what? My eye is not getting any worse. If any, it's getting better because I started taking everything that I could possibly uh, help the eye, right? Like a vitamin two uh, vitamin, right? And like, uh, you know, like bilberry uh, vitamins and stuff like that. And uh, lots of other stuff. Like I started eating more healthier. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know what? My eye didn't get any worse. And and seriously, I find like it's getting uh, better. And another thing I was going to tell you, like, okay, uh, the guy was, he called in about the vaccine and that. Uh-huh. Probably the vaccine should work because a lot of people, right? But it's just that me, I never got no vaccines at all. And I never got no uh, COVID. And I, never, I don't get, even get the flu or colds. Well, that's good. Um, 
So the, the vaccine conversation is a tricky one to navigate, uh, if I'm being honest, which I try to be on this program. Yes, you do. No, you do. So, no, you do. yeah, you do. Um, it's regarding the glaucoma. So that those two particular drugs were not related to glaucoma, as far as I understand their application. I'm not a doctor, but that's how the story's broken down. Oh, and so okay. we actually had a pharmacist on who knows about it, and we invited the man on because he's been aware of this as far back as 2015. It's a bizarre story. It made the national media, and we're still trying to find out exactly what has changed. You know, the mm-hmm. government even went through a procurement process to bring in some of those drugs to try to save some money because it costs hundreds of millions of dollars a year across the country for those two drugs, uh, Ilea and Lucentis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't watch the news that much, but every now and then, because I'm around a lot of negative, some not a lot, but some negative people, right? And uh, yeah, but I got rid of them. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, I'm starting to listen to the news more now, right? So yeah, so that's good. And wasn't that? Yeah. Yeah, because we only had one, right? Well, okay. I didn't want to take a chance, right? Yeah. yeah. I, oh, oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. I was just going to say I appreciate your time. Do you have to, uh, anything else you'd like to say? No, no. Keep up the good work. I appreciate your time. Thank you, okay. Gloria. You're very welcome. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Miss T. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Patty. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on, of course. So you're a drag queen. says that right on my screen. I am, I am. So obviously a lot of conversation in the news uh, and in the social media spheres regarding drag queens, specifically being invited to school to read a book or sing a song or whatever the case may be. So when you hear the stories on certain sides that get maybe exaggerated and or really quite... They're condemning drag queens in full and in some corners. What do you say? Well, first of all, I say they're wrong um, because they have no idea what they're talking about. They're not in our high heels. They're not outperforming. They're not out putting on hours and hours of makeup and learning all these hours and hours of choreography and lyrics and stuff to entertain people, not just children, but they're so hung up on adult entertainment in the drag industry that they think that we're going to push that on children. However, that is the complete opposite. So what are you doing when you go to a school? Uh, We're performing. We're inspiring children to be exactly who they want to be. We're showing them that it's okay to be themselves. It's okay to express themselves. It's okay to love who you want to love. It's okay to want to dance around. It's okay to experiment and play dress up. Like things like this are completely innocent. Kids have been doing this since birth. (laughs) Um, People just want to label things as uh, a man has to do this or a woman has to do this. Um, But they just forget that there's people all in between that spectrum. And no matter how many times that they try to silence us it's not going to happen didn't happen years ago when uh they were trying to erase us all and it's definitely not going to happen today in 2023 the thought is that drag performing is adult entertainment and it's inappropriate for young children who might not be able to fully uh grasp what's going on fully grasp who the drag performer is and what any of those implications might be so they just talk about it as being not appropriate for the age Mm -hmm. Why, why do you think they're wrong uh, they're wrong because 
any drag performer who puts themselves in front of a child, um, whether it be an all-ages show or there's a show happening and somebody passes by and sees a drag queen, um, they're just trying to entertain. They're trying to, uh, like, they're, they're not out here with an agenda. They're, we are here to um, inspire people. I mean, I get it, but the the problem with many of these conversations is that automatically you are forcing or encouraging Mm -hmm. or telling children that you should be like me, as whether it be a trans person or a drag queen or a homosexual or whatever the case may be. So that's the number one pushback is let's protect the children. Let's spare them from Mm -hmm. that because you're trying to encourage them to all be drag queens. And your thoughts and reaction to that is what? Uh, that we're not encouraging to them to be drag queens, period. We're just encouraging them of self-expression. It's the counter people that are pushing their views for everybody to fit inside of a box, inside of a men do this, women do this. But drag queens, we're not telling your children to be gay. We're not encouraging your children to be gay. We're not pushing an agenda on your children and, and saying, uh, hey, it's time to be gay. This is what you do to be gay. Um, there are straight people who do drag, uh, very famous people, especially on RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, but that's the thing, that they have a misconception that we want to push this agenda on children, that we want them to do drag, that we want them to be gay, that we want them to be trans. No, we just we want them to be safe being exactly who they are, and they can decide that for whenever they want to. The, the schools are not pushing sexualization on children. The schools are not pushing LGBT uh, ideology on children. If anything, they're just telling people, uh, if this is who you are, this is who you are. If it's not, it's not. And Jane might have two daddies and John might have two mommies. It, it's just part of the societal uh, fabric that, you know, we can't ignore. can't pretend that exactly. people aren't there. can't pretend they don't exist. I mean, talk about drag. Famous British comedian Dame Edna, a drag comic for decades, just passed away. But all of a sudden, that wasn't a problem, but now everything's a problem. But let me also ask you this, because we do see some drag performances that are absolutely sexually provocative and absolutely scantily clad. If anyone in the drag world does that or performs like that in a school, what do you say to that person? Because even for me, to be open-minded and accepting and understand what's going on in the world, that stuff cannot happen. And when it does, the people that are opposed latch onto that and nothing but. And that becomes the entire narrative. So what do you say to fellow drag queens about behaving a way that's commensurate with the audience? No sexual proclivity or being uh, provocative in a sexual fashion in front of a child because that's completely inappropriate. I imagine you agree. Yes. Oh, I 1000% agree. We have drag shows that are 19 plus specifically. We, those people, um, children cannot come to those shows because the nature of drag, there's all different types of drag. There's not just one type of drag. So there are um, provocative drag and there are like, uh, there's a mix of burlesque and drag and that's all about revealing yourself, right? And those types of things don't happen in front of children. We have all ages events where we fully clothe ourselves, uh, we are bright and sparkly. We look fun. We look engaging. Like nobody is actively, and I can say that confidently in this province alone with all the drag performers, that nobody is out here dancing provocatively in front of your children. And nor should they be. Uh, I appreciate no. the time. Misty, anything else you want to tell us about before I take a break for the news? 
Um, I just want to give a, show, a shout out to the local drag community in St. John's. Um, they're all listening right now. Um, they are my rock. They they are what fuel us. And uh, yeah, and if anybody wants to find me on social media, at Misty Manifest. Appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Thank you so much. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, it's time for the news. How are we doing in the phone queue there, David? When we come back, we're going to talk about water bombers. The province once had a full fleet of five. Of course, you all know the story. One was damaged about five years ago while fighting a fire in the Buren Peninsula. Their government was going to sell it. Now their government is going to fix it. And it's going to be on what timeline? We don't know. Pleeman Force is the PC member for exploits. He wants to talk about the water bomber fleet. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member elected in and serving the folks of Exploits. That's uh, Playman Forsey. Good morning, Playman. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Morning, Patty. I just wanted to weigh in on the uh, water bomber situation again. Uh, you know, we've been talking, of course, uh, of the lack of preparedness, you know, the government is, are for our wildfires, especially, you know, when it comes to water bombers, not only uh, in the number in our fleet, but, but also being able to fly them, you know. And uh, last week, last Thursday, of course, NAEP reaffirmed what we were saying all along. You know, Mr. Earl did say that uh, government say that they have enough staff to operate the remaining four water bombers. He says we do not. We have enough pilots today to effectively and efficiently, on full-time basis, just three. So, Patty, you know, through an ATEP last year, we did find ourselves that, uh, you know, that the water bombers were unable to fly, in, especially in July month, in the peak of the fire, uh, due to no crew. Or, or the water bombers, you know, were unserviceable. You know, so uh, with the water bomber situation, you know, it takes uh, it, it takes one pilot and one captain, or one captain, sorry, one co-pilot to fly those planes. And staffing levels right now, Patty, we can only do three. And given the rest requirements for those pilots, you know, we may even be re- reduced to two. So we need, uh, we certainly need government, I mean, say, to step up here and, uh, and to, you know, uh, Put some attention to those water bombers and the crews. And, uh, you know, if we get another forest fire like we had uh, last year, Patty, we're just not not prepared right now, Patty, to deal with it. Uh, we were shown that last year has taken, taken five years, a uh, major forest fire, and uh, the government still hasn't realized this. I would uh, ask this fundamental question. If we only ever needed three, why did we ever have five? Why we, well, we had uh, we needed five. I mean, so we're st- it's proven, Patty, that we still need five. I mean, say, uh, you know, the forest fires last year. You know, and, uh, again, I, I said this last week. We had five forest, forest fires on the go. Government uh, were rotating those bombers with the four. Uh, you give another fire, forest fire, probably uh, as far as way as Labrador. Sometimes uh, that would take away another 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 water bomber. So we we certainly need a full fleet of water bombers, you know, to be able to uh, adequately, you know, uh, fight fight fires as they are happening right now, especially with climate change, Patty, and the dry, dry air, dry changes that we're having, dry hot weathers. You know, this can happen any time. We need a full fleet of uh, five water, 
five water bombers and especially a full fleet of pilots to fly them. Oh yeah, no, uh, my question would have been directed to the minister, uh, not to you, because I agree, if we ever had five, then obviously we needed five, and if we've been short-handed like we've been in the last couple of wildfire seasons and we need resources from elsewhere, it just says quite clearly that we need fully staffed up, five water bomber crews ready to go because you never know what the worst case scenario might be. So I, I agree with you. And if the government was going back and forth on selling it or repairing it, then they're saying the quiet part out loud. If we're going to repair it, then they think we need it. Well, obviously, and, and you know, it shows we do need it. So I owe government against the, uh, right now it's just an RFQ. I hope they start with the uh, RFP, and the minister says it's going to be late in the next, uh, this year before they even make a decision on that water bomber, you know. So uh, we certainly need the government to step up here and get that done. It just shows the lack of preparedness, uh, Patty, that government has had due to our uh, firefighter preparedness, especially on the water bombers. And uh, here we find ourselves, uh, Patty, with government now scrambling to fix another problem. Yeah, and even though they've said that they are going to fix it, we don't have any idea what the timeline would be. It's certainly going to be somewhere towards the end of this year before we even come up with a plan to repair it. And, you know, this has been happening for almost five years now. So it's about time we've made some type of decision. Well, it definitely is, Patty. We certainly, you know, we certainly need to fix them and say, you know, uh, we just can't go uh, expecting that we're not going to have uh, wildfires. You know, it's happening. It's been proven. So uh, we need certainly to be uh, prepared for the wildfires when they happen. We need to, we need certainly certainly government to uh, to address this situation. You know, and I, and I encourage government to to get the get get the RFP, RFP uh, ready for uh, for that water bomber. And uh, regards to the uh, regards to the uh, pilots, uh, you know, talk to all the stakeholders stakeholders invo- involved and uh, let's get let's get let's get prepared the uh, yeah it, it's an important issue but in addition to that now we've got i think the number i heard most recently was 14 firefighters in nova scotia dealing with that barrington late fire there was also stories coming from labrador about forced fire uh, forced firefighters and the new fitness test or a fitness test that they were taking and so many of them a, a, a sizable percentage failed the test consequently can't go into the force to fight the fire when and if they come to pass so there's a bunch of different uh, areas where we might be coming up short it is, Patty. You know, and, uh, we need to certainly sit down and, uh, and realize uh, what we're dealing with here in regards to the forest fires, and uh, we need to be ad- adequately prepared, Patty, for any situation that may happen uh, a- as they arise. Absolutely. I uh, ple- uh, appreciate the time, Pleeman. Anything else this morning? No, that's good, Patty. It's just that, uh, you know, we, we do need to be pre- prepared for those, those forest fires. That we do. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And, you know, th- th- by the end of May, there was 53 fires that happened in the province uh, compared to 18 a year prior. And there is no doubt, because I get peppered with this constantly, is that no question this wildfire season and other provinces that are uh, experiencing terrible fires, they have been started on purpose. So if it was a lightning strike or someone was reckless or, yes, an arsonist started a forest fire, it's absolutely happening. There's been a bunch of arrests across the country. But that's sometimes where I think we go down that reductive thinking path, right? So the wildfires can't have any contribution regarding or related to climate change. It's all about arson. I mean, compare the millions of hectares on fires this year with last year. Compare the number of fires this year versus last year. Compare in the last 10 years, nine of the most uh, expensive insurance compensation years, nine of them happened in the last 10 years in, in Canadian history. And yes, arsonists may be contributing to the forest fires, but arsonists aren't uh, dealing with hurricanes and floods and other natural disasters. So yeah, are people starting fires? 100%. Is that the reason why there's so many million hectares on fire and so many fires, period? 
it's just a very small component, isn't it? Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Patty, happy Monday, buddy. Happy Monday to you. Um, so I was I was calling in on the uh, the Uber conversation that we're having with regards to St. John's, but I also wanted to uh, make sure that I said uh, Happy Men's Mental Health Month, and um, it's uh, we share it with with pride. I, that sounded like a joke, but I meant it that we share it with Pride Month. But um, you know, I encourage everybody that knows a man in their in their lives. I'm sure everybody does, either a son, a father, a brother, an uncle, whatever. Uh, you know, I encourage everybody to check in with them this month and just see how they're doing. You know, I mean, it's it's important to make sure that people know that they're loved and appreciated, and you know, everything they do is of value. And you know, it's something that doesn't get a lot of airplay, but. You know, it's 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 a very important issue. I mean, I'm sure you know the stats on men's suicide and all that stuff. You kind of seem to know the stats on everything, which I think is amazing. But it's, uh, you know, it's a very important issue for, for June. And I, I encourage everyone to reach out to any man in their lives and, you know, and make sure they're doing OK. Check in with them. The suicide numbers, men versus women, is truly remarkable. Last time I remember reading is something like four to one. Yeah, it's it's really high. I saw a number of 77 percent. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that not many people talk about and you know it's uh it, it, it's tough you know and, and men go through stuff just like anybody else and uh you know it's uh it, it's really important to check in it's really really important so i encourage everybody but anyway on to the uber thing okay so uh yeah i think uber is a great idea uh i've i've traveled quite extensively you know around the world and everywhere i've seen uber i've seen you know positive impacts in in subsequent industries but the larger issue i think in newfoundland is that new one of one of and i'm not going to say the largest but one of the largest industries in newfoundland is tourism and the one of the major problems that we have with regards to tourism is transportation i mean you know we're probably the only capital city in I would say North America that doesn't have a bus route to an airport. Like Metro bus doesn't go to the airport. It goes to airport heights, but it doesn't go to the airport. And you know, you, that service is for people that want to choose it. So locals that just know where they're going and they want to get home and they're okay with taking the bus. Um, you know, I think that the city of St. John's should be looking more closely at that as a first step, you know, and then outside of that, uh, when I take a cab in another province for example that has uber i find the cabs they've they've stepped up their game you know they have the gps map on screen and you know exactly where you're going it's pre-calculated just like you get in an uber and you know a lot of taxi drivers do skip over to the uber side because you know maybe it's better for them i mean i remember there was a caller i think on friday who was saying that you know the insurance premiums are, are more and, and yada 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 now i don't know what the i don't know what the revenue split is between an uber driver versus a taxi driver but i mean I'm sure if you factor in all of your expenses based on what the caller was saying, it may be more lucrative to go the Uber way than to stay in the taxi way. And I know that, you know, there there's a large lobby of taxi drivers in Newfoundland. And I hate to say it, but I feel like they've sort of stagnated the market. And, you know, you can't you have to look at the greater good, in my opinion. And the greater good is what would have the largest market impact? Would, would it be staying with taxi drivers or would it be going with something that's going to provide people the flexibility to travel out beyond the overpass, you know, where there's so much more to see? And everybody knows there's a huge rental car problem here. Like, we have major transportation issues in Newfoundland. And I'm not dumping on anybody. I'm not saying anybody's at fault. It's nothing like that. It's just, you know, sometimes some simple solutions 
may work out a little bit better. And I think a public transportation to the airport would be the first step. I mean, you go to any major city, they've got a train going there. They've got buses going there. They'll normally have, you know, cabs as well. And you'll have your exclusive deal with the airport where your cab company can go to the airport. That's all fine. But it's it's about choice and market choice, you know, and, and that, that encourages those those market players to step their game up to become that leader in that space. And I encourage all of them to do it. But, you know, I think that choice is very important in a free market. Of course. So the Uber issue, you know, like the, we had a taxi driver call last week and one of the Twitter followers simply said, well, if Uber comes to town and he thinks it's going to decimate his taxi industry, why not just become an Uber driver? That's not really the point. If we're yeah. simply having the same people who were once driving a Jiffy cab now driving an Uber, we haven't added to the market. So fine, he can absolutely drive Uber. But what, yeah. I think what we're trying to uh, achieve here is have more options available, consequently less wait time. And you know, I, I don't really know why anybody can you know picture that because we're adding we're not just uh, you know taking away from one and we're backfilling it with another because we get no further ahead if i need a ride i'm really not that concerned if i'm in a traditional taxi or in an uber if it works for me and the price is right and the wait time is what it is i'm happy to get in the back of either absolutely and you may have some people that you know i mean you know you may have some people that want a better vehicle they want to ride in a luxury vehicle they want to ride in a you know that choice for the market is is going to really sort of dictate which way it goes but you know the overall thing for me is you know we need to supply we need to supply the economic drivers with as many with as many outs as we can and you know the fact is that we have a we have a very limited bus and transportation service we have very limited rentals here we have you know we have a lot of ops barriers to entry for a lot of those larger um, those larger industries. And I think any player that's coming into that market, sure, sure what are they going to say when driverless cars come out? I mean, it's going to be the same debate, you know, like it, it's it's all, now I don't think we're ever going to get that here. I mean, can you imagine a driverless car trying to make its way through downtown? Well, especially <laughs> when you can't uh, differentiate between some of the obstacles, what you can hit and what you can't. Yeah. I mean, I understand the world of technological advancement, or at least I try to, but the driverless car still makes me a little bit queasy, to be honest. Me too. I think that works well in a in a pre-planned city. Like if you're looking at you know Vancouver or Toronto, where Newfoundland, I don't think it's going to work so well because of river development. I mean, we got streets that go off to nowhere, right? But I think that you know it's all part of the discussion. But I, I definitely would like to put the 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 in someone's ear at Metrobus and St. John's that there's no reason. There's no logical reason we don't have a bus that goes to the airport. Apparently we do. Uh, someone just sent along a link to Metro Bus saying that Route 14, four times a day, uh, leaves Mon Center at 5.50, Marine Institute at 6, Eastern Health at 6.10, and uh, arrives at the airport, or pardon me, uh, the airport drop-off is, to, to see if I'm reading this properly. Oh, and then yeah. it's a 6.20 stop there, so four times a day, Route 14, apparently. So it does go right to the airport? Apparently so. I didn't know because wow. I've never taken a bus to the airport, but that's the information that's provided either, by the listener. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope that's true. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's really awesome, and I think that you know more of that is necessary. But you know, I think the Uber thing is just going to add more value to the market, in my opinion, and it'll it'll cause the market to evolve, and that always helps the consumer. What I do know is if I travel to another city, like if I land at Pearson International, the first thing I do is I, I call an Uber, right? Yeah. Every time. Yeah. Because that's just the way I prefer to do that type of business. Uh, Rob, good to have you on. Anything else you want to say? No, buddy. Uh, listen, take care. I, I just wanted to check in with you personally, too, and make sure you're okay. And 
my door is always open. My phone number is probably on there somewhere. If you ever need to talk, I'm here for you, buddy, and I appreciate everything that you do. I'm doing best kind, but I thank you for that, Rob. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, final break of the morning. When we come back, lots of time for you. Bye. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, line number one. Hello. Hello. Hi, Patty. Yes. Hi, I wonder if you could help me. I lost a set of keys, GM car keys and my house keys. Some were in the West End, maybe Monday Pond area. I wonder if anyone picked them up. Could they call me? And you said you described the keys as GM keys, with general motor keys? General motor keys okay. and uh, a set of house keys. And there's kind of a big happy face on it as a decal, like a big happy face. Okay. So if you picked up those keys, folks, uh, we know who owns them. So just call David Williams and we'll connect the two of you. Okay. Thank you kindly. You're welcome. Good luck. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, final word this morning goes to line number five. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Patty, just wanted to speak to you briefly about the crab's history again. I'm, I just happened to be on the highway this morning and I'm uh, listening to your show and uh, one or two previous callers, I think, called in about the fishery. Uh, the, last, the last one was was not a fisherman himself, he said, but he brought up an, an important issue, I think. He mentioned about Quinlan's owning 11 boats or something. Uh, uh, that that may, may be true. I don't know for sure if it is or not. But he also brought up another issue that I think is worthy of discussion, and that is the fact that he said if things keep going the way they are, then eventually there won't be any independent fish harvesters. Everything will be owned by uh, the processors. And I beg to differ there. I think he's wrong. Uh, the, that'll only happen if fish harvesters, young fish harvesters getting into the industry, choose not to take risk and borrow money to uh, buy and grow an enterprise. If fishermen stop taking risks and stop investing, then, yes, maybe processors will fill the void. But only in that case, in my opinion. Well, and if that's the case, and you're the fish harvester, is we've got to make it easier for anybody, any young person who's interested to be able to get into it. It's already fairly easy, uh, in my opinion. I mean, uh, I had to get in it. I had to step out of the classroom and get into it. I did what was required. My son had to step out of high school and get into it, and he did what was required. I don't know where the difficulty is that people keep keep harping on. Well, they're young people who see a problem and they're interested in the fishery as a job. So they tell me, I'm not in the fishery. I'm not trying to get into the fishery. So that's not a lived experience I'm speaking to. I'm sorry. What was that you said again? I said those are opinions offered by people who are trying to get in. It's not my opinion because I'm not trying to get into the fishery. It's not something that I've lived or gone through. So, again, I'm not offering my thoughts on the matter because I'm not directly involved in it, period. No, I, I, I did not say it was your opinion, but uh, uh, to, for a young harvester to get into the fishery now, to start off as a, a deckhand or a crew member, uh, he has to do almost nothing, really, to start. He's got to uh, submit a very short application to the Professional Fish Harvester Certification Board with a $75 payment. <clears throat> signed by his, his sponsoring skipper, who's going to fish for it, and he's in. As a crew member. Now, if he wants to move beyond that and become, uh, i.e., a skipper 
for an enterprise owner to have licenses and a vessel in his name, uh, he has to have some experience in the fishery and he has to have some school credits, which is, I don't see the difficulty in that. You've got to do that to almost in any profession now. So in a matter of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, four to five years, three to four, four to five years, to get the combination of sea time and school credits that you can do wintertime in your off-season from fishing, you can become a level two harvester, and uh, then you're free to take that risk if you want to and invest in a fishing enterprise. So where's the difficulty in that? I wonder how it uh, gets into people's minds when they see some of the issue regarding the price of one species or another. And this time we're talking about crab, you know, just how uh, excellent the price was last year compared to this year. And then the want or the willingness to take on a massive investment in something that's so volatile. I wonder what role that plays in people's minds, too, because it certainly plays a role in my mind when we look at different business opportunities. If it's massive risk, not that interested. Uh, Terry, I know that you, uh, Dave told you that we have to get out hard at 12 noon and we've arrived at that but you're always welcome okay i want to continue this conversation another time sure. if i'm not fishing one day next week or something i might call in to finish this okay sounds good thank you thanks terry bye-bye all right uh, good show today we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye